All right, everybody, welcome to today's talk uh, here in this accelerator. We're talking about money. What, uh, you know, the theme of this whole program is the things that I wish and other people that I look up to uh, wish we had known at 18 about money, finances, and, you know, how to be financially independent, create wealth. So I have Ryan Holiday here, very special guest. Uh, this is one of his great books, The Obstacle is the Way, but he's also written and is very well known for be, being the, one of the geniuses behind American Apparel, which is multi, I think it's a billion plus brand. So welcome to, to today's talk. It's good to be here. So let's just start, let's just jump into it. There's so much we can go. You, you've done so many different things uh, to become financially uh, successful. What do you? What is the first thing that comes to mind for someone listening that you wish you had known about money? You've had some great mentors. We'll talk about that. And uh, but let's just start there. I always think that's the great beginning point. Yeah, I, I think the big thing that uh, was helpful for me, or that I wish I realized earlier, was like it. It's it's sort of like like look if you don't know how much money you actually want or what the life you actually want is you tend to default to this idea of like I just want as much as possible and so like I found that like for instance I, I get paid very well as a writer my marketing company does well I I I'm doing well financially but I realized like I would increasingly find myself spending a lot of time to make money that I didn't actually want and that was actually taking me away from the kinds of work that I actually like. So it's like, let's say I take on, I could take on a marketing client tomorrow that might pay me, you know, in the mid six figures or, you know, could pay me in the six figures. And, but if I didn't actually like their product or what they did, then I'm trading my time, which is finite for two, and, and trading my ability to spend time writing or with my family or whatever else I want to do for money that ultimately I, like, I don't live a lifestyle that requires me to have a lot of money. And so I found that this, that, that, that this balance is really important. And it's, it's sort of getting down and saying, like, okay, this is what I need to live the life that I want. And I'm going to earn to that point. And look, if I make more than that because I'm successful, fantastic. But I'm... A, I've, I've found that one of the hardest things in the world for humans to do is to say no to money. Right. And now this is like a, this is a, a first world problem. Certainly I'm not saying it affects everyone, but like saying no to money is really hard. And so if you don't have a, a framework or a system for doing so, you end up saying yes to things that might make you more money in the short term, but make you less happy in the long term. And then ironically, ultimately make a lot less money over the long term because you're not doing the sort of the great work that you can be doing. Yeah, Joel Salatin, my first mentor, used to say, Ty, just remember, not every profitable customer is profitable, meaning the books might say you brought in 100 grand and the expense was 20 grand, so it's very profitable. But he said, just yep. remember, profit has to be uh, measured in more than just accounting terms. You must measure does this person give you heartaches? I was actually just reading the book. Uh, Paul Allen wrote a book. He's the co-founder of Microsoft, him and Bill Gates. And he said when he bought the Portland Trailblazers basketball team, he had Clyde Drexler, who, if you know basketball history, has been one of the great basketball players of all time. Yeah. And he made the mistake of giving Clyde Drexler his phone number 
And he said, three in the morning, for years, I'd get a call. And he would say, the phone would say, hey, you know who this is? And Paul Allen would say, yeah, the only person who calls me at three in the morning. And Clyde Drexler would sit there and complain about his pay. And so Clyde Drexler, I don't know if he'd considered an example, but Clyde Drexler was profitable on paper in the sense that, yeah, he was a great basketball player, scored lots of points, but Paul Allen's quality of life went downhill. So where do you, do you, how do you do that? Do you pick a number, you go, I wanna make 300 grand a year, and the only way I'll make, try to make more than 300 grand is just, just an amazing, because you have a marketing consulting business. Only if the most amazing customer comes in and says, I'll pay you another 100 grand, sure, you'll make another 100 grand, but by vetting it very well, is that how you kind of do it? Yeah, so the rule I kind of came up with in my I have partners in my company, and what we were, it's like, look, we want to do, um, we want to do work, like the rule of thumb we have when we're looking at a client is we want to do work that we're proud of, that's criteria number one, like, do I actually want to tell people that I worked on this book or this startup or whatever? And if I don't, that's a pretty good indicator that I shouldn't be spending my time on it, right? Mm, okay. Um, good, yeah. And then number two, can, can it make me enough money to fund my life and my pursuit of other creative projects? So like my first book, I got a very large advance for. It was my marketing book because it was very much like publishers like doing marketing books because they know they could potentially make a lot of money. My book, when I, when I said, hey, for my second book, I'd like to write a book about classical philosophy, they were like, um, I don't know about that. And Here's so 10 grand. Took, Here's a 10 grand advance. Yeah. I took, I took a much, it wasn't 10 grand, but I took a much lower offer, like way less than half of what I got for my first book. And, and so, um, but I knew, one, that I really wanted to write this book, and I knew that it would sell well in the long term. And most importantly, I knew that I wasn't depending on this writing to put food in my mouth and a roof over my head. So I was able to take a longer term bet on myself because I was financially independent. It's not like I have a trust fund, but it's like because I have these other projects, which I'm proud of, but also allow me to take risks creatively, I'm able to, to have a little bit more strategic flexibility than like somebody who's just a professional writer. And so... I see the work that I do as a consultant. It needs to be fulfilling, but ultimately, like I might be able, I might be willing to trade some of the fulfill the fulfillment aspect, provided that it it gives me the freedom to say take a lower book advance or hire this person to work on the project or spend this amount on advertising or whatever it needs to be. Now, but let's talk about for someone listening. So you're now one of the the rewards yeah. of being financially independent is the ability to be picky. So I, I, I'm like that now, but there was a time, how do you do this when you're broke and you're trying to put food on the table? What, where, where did you allow yourself to compromise and go, all right, if I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't take this client, but right now I'm just trying to pay my bills. What do you do there without being too much of a sellout? You might have to sell out a little bit more than normal. How, how, do, you, how do you deal with that? Sure, yeah. There's a great quote from Austin Kleon who wrote Feel Like an Artist. He's saying, like, creative people have to say yes until they can start saying no. Right. And so that was very much, like, very much my approach. I, was, I would say yes to everything I worked. I worked, at one point, I was a research assistant for Robert Greene. I was an executive at a company called The Collective, which is a talent management agency in Hollywood. And I was a personal assistant to Tucker Max. All at the same time, <laughs> I was working 
That's quite an assortment of people there. Robert Greene and Tucker Max. It was uh, all over the place. But, like, for me, I was like, look, these are, I'm putting in my hours, right? Like, it's like I'm getting my 10,000 hours, and if I do it three at the same time, it'll go faster. But the big thing for me was, like, I was willing to sacrifice my comfort and my um, my sort of, uh, like, like when I, when I worked for Tucker, I slept on a mattress on his floor, and, like, I would leave on the weekends. I would go stay with my girlfriend who lived about an hour away. And the dogs would fucking piss on the mattress. Sorry for cursing, but the dogs would piss on the mattress. So I, like, I literally slept on like a piss-stained mattress. So I, because I knew that what I was learning from this person about writing and about marketing would allow me to not have to live there in the future. And so I think the big thing is, and I see this with like college students, like, so I'm a dropout. But it's like, look, when you when you take on two hundred thousand dollars in debt, um you're not then able to sleep on someone's floor right. um, and, and take a job that really doesn't pay you any money because like you have the equivalent of a mortgage yeah. that you have to pay every month. Yeah. And so by not having debt, by not like, look, I knew a lot of people who had the same internship as I did that lived in, you know, really nice apartments and leased nice cars. And like, I didn't do those things because I knew that the lower my nut was, the more, freedom and and uh and flexibility i had to take chances on things and and i've tried to keep that now it's like like look obviously my expenses have grown i own two houses and i i i i I like nice stuff but i i try to think about it in such a way of like are you living below whatever your means happen to be and if you are what you're you're investing in your you're investing in strategic freedom in that regard i think that's really important yeah, and so you know the, the fundamental premise of this whole program, the people listening in, uh, I call it investing, and, and not just investing in the classic term, investing in the stock market or real estate, but investing in yourself. And to me, the definition of an investor is a little bit like your book. It's a stoic definition. A, an investor is somebody who postpones uh, present pleasure, immediate momentary pleasure, for a greater return in the future. And that is the one tried and true uh, and common trait in people who do great things, whether it be financial or not, but we're talking about money. So let's switch gears here. I like this talking about uh, sleeping on couches and listening and mentoring and apprenticeships. I did that same thing, Call it, I'm a college dropout too. Tell me about this kind of apprenticeship you had with the famous author Robert Greene and how important you think mentorships were and are to your success and how do you get a mentor if you don't have one, someone listening now that knows they need one but don't, doesn't know how to attract someone. How'd you get your mentor? Let's start with that. How did you get a mentor like Robert Greene? Yeah, so I, I would say first off mentors are like, it would be impossible to overstate the importance of mentorship. I would not be talking to you. I would not have written any book. I would not be the director of marketing in American Apparel or have been if it wasn't for Robert Greene. And it, the, the process, uh, I can see the chain, how it happened very easily. I was in college. I was writing a newspaper article uh, for the college paper, and I, I interviewed and talked to Tucker Max, who was this sort of college hero slash writer. And I got to know him for the course of the article, and I would ask him questions, and we got to know each other. And, and I said, you know, look, uh, you live in L.A. I go to Squad Side L.A. I would like to work for you this summer. Um, 
I will work for you for free. You don't have to pay me anything. I just want to work for you. And I will learn anything. And, and I think I can provide value to you in these ways. I knew a little bit about online advertising and blogging and stuff like that. And so he said yes. So I worked for him for the whole summer, basically. And, and, and I was, you know, I put up with some shit, right? I lived on this mattress and everything. And as one of the benefits, as a, as a way of him rewarding me uh, for, for my work, he took me out to lunch with Robert Greene, who was a friend of his. And I was a huge Robert Greene fan, and we sat there at lunch. It was at the Alcove in Los Angeles, which is a great place. And uh, I was sitting there talking to him, and Robert was complaining about how crappy his research assistants had been. And, like, I'd read all of Robert's books. I'd researched things that he talked about in his book. I was, like, prepared for this moment to happen. I basically had to restrain myself from, like, jumping across the table. I was like, look, <laughs> I'll work for you for free. Like, whatever. Like, I would die to be a research assistant. And I remember he said, like, look, nobody works for me for free, but I'll give you a trial. And if it works out, um, you, can, you can help me uh, with my next book. And I ended up, for unrelated reasons, dropping out of college shortly thereafter. But I learned how to be a writer and how to be a thinker and be a researcher from Robert Greene, from doing the things that he asked me to do for him. And then every spare second, I would try to ask questions. I would say, why do you do this? You know, how does one, like, I remember I had one question as I was like, who makes the index in the back of the book? Like, how does that happen? Like, I just had a million questions and I would ask him these questions and he would answer. And then eventually when I had my own book idea, I was able to say like, Robert, you know, I think I'm ready. Could you introduce me to um, an agent? And that's, that's what happened. Yeah, so it's this, you know, how to win friends and influence people, how to network. And the principle, I see it in my own life uh, and in stories like yours, where you go. And it's a great practical tip for those of you listening. You can start with an interview. You interviewed Tucker Max. You did a good job. So yeah. it, it's like the principle is get the foot in the door. And a great way is kind of stroke people's pride, not in a, in a disingenuous way, but people like to be interviewed. It makes them feel good that somebody's interested. So you get your foot in the door with one person, you become a standout. That's step number two. People forget that. They think it's just, hey, Ty, how do I, you know, do I make eye contact? Do I shake hands? It's like, no, that just gets you in the door. Once you're there, the hard part is staying in the house. And you stood in the house by doing a good job for Tucker Max then he leads you, and that's the third step. Inevitably, your first connection is not the most important. It's the friend of the friend that leads you. And so you just, that three-step process, and boom, and then that alters the course of your destiny for the rest of your life. Yeah, totally. Look, successful people know other successful people. And if you can solve problems for one successful person, you get passed around. Like, I worked for Robert Greene for a long time, and he, he happened to be on the board of directors for American Apparel. And, huh. you know, they needed more from him than he, could, than he could provide as a board of directors. He said, look, like I've been working with this kid. He's really smart. Why don't you just have him work, work with you? And, and so I came in and, uh, you know, I worked my way up to the company and I, I you know, I became a director of marketing. And that was, that was, um, that was all like, it, I met Robert, or sorry, I met Tucker to meet Robert to meet, Dove and, and American Apparel, and like I, yeah, I went from one mentor to the other. I had them all at the same time. Yeah, it's it's it is a truly a tried and true way to 
success, not just financially, we're talking about financially. So as we close this up, this segment, we're going to be talking more for those of you in the entrepreneur and persuasion part of this program, we're going to be talking to Ryan on his ideas on building businesses and, and uh, marketing. But for those of you listening, let's answer three questions below here as we close out this talk. Number one, uh, who can you interview? One person, leave it as a comment below. What one person that you could interview that would get you, uh, get your foot in the door. Number two, uh, how good of work do you do when you do free work for somebody? So whether it be a Tucker Max or even if they pay you, are you willing to do good work? Because only good work escalates you to better and better opportunities. So on a one to 10, what's your willingness? And the best way is to use Peter Drucker's feedback analysis score. So don't do what you think you would do because everybody would say, oh, I'll be a 10. In the past, when you've been a volunteer somewhere, have you been a 10 or have you been a seven? Put that number below, so past feedback. And the third question uh, is, on a one to 10 scale, in the past, how good have you been at postponing financial present pleasures, like spending on a trip to Disneyland or buying some new clothes versus the willingness, like Ryan was, to sleep on a pea-stained couch? and what can you do to become a little more stoic, okay? So answer those three. Ryan, thanks for being in this section, and uh, this was awesome. Thanks for having me. All right, we're talking here to Professor Joseph Ledoux. He wrote the book, Anxious. I wanna talk specifically about money, and so many people that wanna make money. Oh, and by the way, I'm here with uh, Dr. Garcia Fresco, molecular neuroscientist, and you know, the subject of money brings up fear. I'm going to bring in uh, Professor Ledoux here in a second to talk to you and talk to us about, you know, fear as it pertains to something practical like money. What do you have to do to capture that fear? Because when it comes to making more money than you grew up around, <clears throat> that's naturally going to create a fear reaction. The brain doesn't like the unknown. So if you're used to making this much money, going up is the unknown. And so you have to be very careful with the unknown because if you don't manage the fear correctly, uh, you'll give up very quickly or you won't even start. So I'm gonna bring him on the line. Let's talk about money, fear, and anxiety. Fear, anxiety, and you've also written books on the emotional brain and you've written a, a book on uh, the synaptic self. So as we expand out from the fear and anxiety in the brain into other areas. Let's talk about a subject uh, that is near and dear to most people's hearts, which is money. People spend <laughs> the primary, and, and even before humans had money like we have in the modern world, we were always having to gather resources to survive, whether it be food, shelter, and so on. Resource management, which is what we call time, uh, would make sense that we have a lot of fear and anxiety, whether it's people staying up late at night worrying about paying the bills, uh, whether, you know, worrying about what would life be if you had this better job and keeping up with the Joneses. What do you think when it comes to these practical things that are real human problems? Like I read something like 20% of the U.S. and Europe is on some kind of anxiety uh, prescription. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly the number, but, but a lot of people are on it. And 
money is definitely one of those things. I think it's the, one of the leading causes of divorce and all this. So, uh, you as one. I think you wrote 40 million people have anxiety disorder. Is that correct, Joe? About 40 million uh, people? That's mostly correct, yeah. That's, what, yeah. that's the estimate that, that's been made. Yeah, so, that's, what, that's what, what can people. people take if somebody's, you know, people always want to have more money. And all, I always say greatness is equals coolness under pressure. I interviewed uh, friends with a guy, George Mumford, who coached Michael Jordan. Uh, he was his psychologist and Kobe Bryant and these great athletes. And we were having lunch and I said, what's the one thing you learned? What made Michael Jordan great after 10 years of working him? And he said, eye of the hurricane. And I said, what do you mean, George? And he said, the more the hurricane was storming outside, the cooler Michael Jordan got. So when it comes to the subject of money and any practical thing, let's just take money because it's such a big one. How do people, how does someone like Michael Jordan stay cool under pressure? And if somebody's more anxious, how do they overcome that fear and anxiety on practical things that are day-to-day life stressors? Right. Well, I mean, the first thing to note is that, you know, the, the reason that we can be that we have anxiety is a kind it's sort of the, the price we pay for having a brain that can anticipate the future. So fear is a response to an immediately present danger like a, a snake at your feet. Whereas anxiety is a worry about some danger that hasn't happened yet. You know, are you gonna have enough money? Uh, are you gonna be able to pay the bills? Can you get your mortgage? Will you have a better car next year or whatever? So the ability to worry about those things comes from the fact that we have a prefrontal cortex that can anticipate the future. So we, um, uh, this gives us, uh, you know, a tremendous advantage in the animal kingdom of being able to make plans, to envision things, to imagine um, structures that don't exist, imagine worlds that, that don't exist, uh, kind you know, social situations that don't exist and so forth to, or even in conversation with someone to be able to put yourself in the mind of another person and anticipate their behavioral responses and your interactions with them. All of these are are wonderful things that our capacity to anticipate leads us to, but it also leads us to be able to anticipate things that are bad for us. And that's, uh, that's where worry comes in. Worry, you know, anxiety disorders came very close to being reclassified as worry disorders. Because that's basically what they're about, worrying about, uh, about things, all of which comes from uh, our capacity to uh, for something very useful. Most, most problems come out of things that are benefits to the brain. Fear is, um, comes out of systems that are there to protect us. Stress, uh, we, we talk about stress hormones and stress systems and so forth. Those are not systems to make us feel stressed. Those are systems that help us adapt in challenging situations. Stress is a consequence that happens when those systems break down and are unable to uh, help, unable to help you adapt and cope. So stress is not, um, uh, you know, the system. We talk about cortisol being the stress hormone, for example. It's not there to make you stressed. It's there to help you cope with a stressful situation. And it's only when it either it fails or it is overproduced that you begin to feel stressed. And then that becomes, uh, the, the, the word stress hormone is, is a big misnomer in, in effect. 
So anyway, these things that are useful to us are um, are the basis for many of our problems. Um, anxiety is you know, a consequence of our ability to see the future. Uh, but our ability to see the future is what allows us to have what's been called auto-noetic consciousness, a sense that, that we know who we are now, we can envision who we are in the future, we can put that together with who we've been in the past, and all of that is, uh, seems to be a, a particularly human kind of capacity. So, you know, anxiety uh, is, I would you know, say, is primarily a, a human characteristic. Are certainly a characteristic of animals with brains that are much similar to ours. Um, but it, it probably is, is closely tied to language as well because, you know, when you start envisioning the future, you're envisioning a future with lots of characteristics uh, and partitions that, that have names and so forth. So, you know, you're thinking about, well, how what's going to happen to my house uh, uh, if I don't prepare it by weatherproofing it? Uh, and what's going to happen to my family if it's not weatherproofed and it's colder than it should be this winter, or if there are uh, places where vermin can get in and, and leave germs, and uh, uh, maybe maybe mice will get in and bring deer ticks and we'll get Lyme disease. So all of these things, you know, you have to be able to conceptualize these things, to label them, categorize them, and that ability of the human brain to categorize is very important. And language is not just important, though, for, for semantic partitions of the world, but also it gives us the ability to quickly simulate things that take animals many, many, many repetitions to learn. Yeah. So we can, because we have, we have syntax, we can quickly identify social situation and parse it into who's going to do what to whom when. So basically it's to do that is Sorry? It's a double-edged sword. The ability, for example, yeah. to worry about making money uh, causes you to make plans to make more. It causes you to educate yourself, right. causes you to go. But at the same time, if it is overactive, you can't turn it off. I, it's interesting. One of my favorite books of all time is uh, Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. And the second mm -hmm. chapter, uh, he talks about human happiness and he basically concludes that you know as the title says that civilization makes us unhappy in a certain so he doesn't completely conclude that but it's exactly what you said we need to live in civilization to live in civilization you must make money to make money you must think into the future yet like Soren Kierkegaard the philosopher says our uh, and you mentioned that in the book our unhappiness comes from the fact that we can predict in the future and we can see the dark side we can see ourselves going broke we can see ourselves becoming bankrupt and so at the same time we're envisioning ourselves making money we're simulating an also a bad outcome so if somebody has that because on a scale of one to ten some people are going to be ones they're always simulating the bad outcome and some people are over optimistic i read the book by uh uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, what's his Alan Greenspan, and he said his experience is most people are over-optimistic, they're tens, and really you want to get this middle way, or you want to pick the right situation at the right time. You want to worry when you should worry, and be optimistic and project when you should. How does somebody fix, and not that you could answer this completely on this call, but 
Uh, what are some mechanisms? We talked about deep breathing to stay cool under pressure. We talked about exposing yourself, exposure therapy, not exposing yourself, that sounds wrong. <laughs> uh, exposure therapy, <laughs> annihilation therapy, any other things that, pre- I, I know you mentioned at the end of the book, you know, if go to, uh, well, actually, let me say this. What about the place of logic? So you logically go, great example, Jeff Bezos. He wanted to make money. He wanted to do something big. He was working at a good job on Wall Street, making $200,000, $300,000 a year. And he said he had a lot of anxiety about whether he should quit and start this pet idea he had or this pet project of Amazon.com. And he said the real game changer for him is when he analyzed logically and he said, if I doesn't work out with Amazon, can I ever get a job again? Yes. If I don't do Amazon and it, somebody else does it, what am I going to feel like at 70 years old? And so he called it the regret minimalization framework. And he said, the second I used my logic, my fear was overcome and I instantly made the choice. And we know in his specific case, he's $42 billion richer. I think he feels he took the right choice. So that's a practical thing. How can people, can people use logic to overcome anxiety and fear? Well, part of the problem, though, is that logic and reason um, only affects the logical and reasoning parts of your brain. We have to think of the brain as being composed of a variety of systems that don't necessarily all talk together. This gets us back to where we started at the beginning, which is that we have systems that are going to control our uh, automatic reactions to danger. Um, uh, For example, when you uh, encounter something dangerous, your amygdala is turned on and you react to that danger. And there's nothing you can do consciously to stop that. It's going to happen. You can short circuit it. You can kind of, you know, put the brakes on it after it's happened a bit. Uh, but it's going to be, you can't consciously control systems that work unconsciously. So we, you, you know, that's why we need uh, therapy uh, to work. And we need it to work better because therapists, I think a, an important thing in the book that I try to get across is that you know, therapy needs to separately attack these systems that work non-consciously and systems that work consciously because logic is not going to change the amygdala. At the same time, the amygdala is not going to change logic. So you have to treat those two things as, as separate systems that can be separately uh, analyzed and separately studied. So exposure therapy, if done in the way that I recommend in the book, can... Uh, separately attack the amygdala and weaken its ability to cause arousal that another uh, responses that can make interfere with logic and reasoning. Uh, and at the same time, once that, once you've reduced that arousal, then you can begin to try to change your beliefs and attitudes and other things that are, that are more taking place at the level of consciousness. But the way most therapy is conducted now, those things all happen simultaneously and the brain competes for resources in trying to change those things. And I think that neither the conscious nor the unconscious system is changed uh, optimally. And to optimize the effect, we have to separately change those systems. For, for, for people watching, what chapter, which chapter is that in the book, Anxious, where you speak on this? Do you well, the last three chapters build towards that, that concept. Uh, there's a chapter called 40 Million Anxious Pains, which kind of builds, to, begins to discuss the anxiety disorders and what they're all about. And then chapter, that's chapter nine. Chapter 10 then uh, talks about um, ways to uh, change the brain. And then finally, chapter 11 is, is more about 
uh, how to therapeutically, you know, uh, alter how therapy can be improved by information uh, from brain research. And I've been writing a bunch of blogs for Psychology Today where I, I uh, go through some of these issues. Uh, there was one on called Why the Amygdala is Not the Brain Spear Center, another on uh, why anti-anxiety drugs don't work better, and then one on how psychotherapy can be improved by information from neuroscience. So those go through a lot of the, the detail that we've kind of been hinting at circling around in this uh, discussion. Interesting. I, I want to go back to the logical um, aspect. Is, is it good to say, like Ty was talking about, you know, what's the logic about, or somebody logically says, I'm going to do this because it's going to hopefully make me more money. Isn't the your conscious or your higher level uh, brain centers dictated by your lower levels anyway, so that you're not really, even though you think you're being logical, um, really you're dictated by your experiences from and 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 control of your lower centers. Is that an accurate thing to say? Sure. So that, but but let's let's uh, break it down into into different partitions here. So the um, um, Starting with, with Rene Descartes in the 17th century, the mind was viewed as consciousness. With Freud and others in the 19th century, the mind was divided into conscious and unconscious parts. But the unconscious for Freud was, you know, stuff that was repressed and sent into these you know, deep chambers that kept it from entering consciousness. Um, but in, in contemporary psychology, we have something called the cognitive unconscious, which is uh, information that is not repressed, but it's unconscious simply because it's not available to conscious access. For example, you're sitting in a room with other people, and you can look around the room and see you know, who's closer to you and who's further away. Your brain is computing the geometry, geometric relationships between you and, and those other people or other objects in the room. Uh, and you know you can estimate the depth of uh, the situation, but you're not actually doing, you have no conscious access to that geometry. Or another good example is when you're speaking, you can, um, you know, you, you are selecting word choices uh, and putting them in a certain grammatical order. None of that is happening at the conscious level. You don't have access to your semantic and syntactic systems that choose words and arrange them into grammatical structures. And yet, the sentences come up reasonably uh, grammatically correct and semantically precise and to carry out the, the tasks that you design. So, yes, a lot of information, um, a lot of stuff that happens in the brain. In fact, I just to make a wild statement, I'd say most, uh, you know, as Freud said, the consciousness is the tip of the iceberg. Right. So most of what the brain does is do it's doing unconsciously. Um, but some of that information is uh, working to make consciousness uh, uh, possible to create, uh, you know, it's working underneath to make consciousness uh, uh, work as it feeds consciousness. But there's a lot of the rest of the brain that is working um, independent of consciousness. So we, a lot of our behavior is controlled by systems that work unconsciously. And we only know about these by observing our own responses. And so we observe our behavior in a certain situation, and that information is put into our conscious mind, and we then consciously interpret why we did that. We do this kind of automatically, 
uh, as a way of, of coming to some understanding of who we are and uh, what our what our uh, purpose in life is. So as, when I was doing my PhD research, we were studying split-brain patients. These are people who have terrible epilepsy and the, there's no treatment that, that is working for them. So the brain is actually sectioned in half so that the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere are separated. Yeah. Now, you... In a situation like that, what we found was that we made the right hemisphere perform some response, like uh, stand up. And we then asked the left hemisphere, which is the, the speaking hemisphere, the one you could talk to, say, well, why'd you do that? The left hemisphere would say, oh, I needed to stretch. Or if we made the right, the left, the right hemisphere uh, uh, wave the left hand, you'd say to the left hemisphere, why'd you do that? And you'd say, well, you know, I thought I saw friends. I waved up there. If we made the, the guy laugh by putting the command into the right hemisphere, the left hemisphere would say, oh, you guys are really funny. So the idea is that you know our behavior is constantly being controlled by these non-conscious systems. And we take this information in and incorporate it into our self-concept because we don't know what's happening in most of our brain. Consciously, we don't know. Yeah. Our brains aren't wired yet to allow consciousness to have access, or maybe it'll never be that way to have access to everything the brain does. It would be horrible if consciousness had to plan everything we do. So we have all these systems that, that make us, uh, allow us to respond in certain ways. And we learn about ourselves by observing our behavior, by monitoring our activities. And this is one of the important things that the prefrontal cortex does. It allows us to monitor our activity, use information from our own behavior to create a self-concept that includes that information. It's kind of a, an interpretation or a, uh, uh, um, an assembly or a collage or collection of information that begin, that we put together to understand who it is we are. And that helps us carry our, our sense of self over time, day to day, month to month, year to year, in a coherent fashion. All right, so in closing, as we've been talking to Professor Ledoux on the subject of money, I want to close out this lesson, ask you a few questions below, all right? Number one, when it comes to something practical, and we, and we heard, you know, how the subconscious and the conscious brain, that's a little more complicated than most people think, but uh, what is your number one fear and anxiety when it comes to losing money? Okay, that's number one. Like, what is it? That you couldn't feed your family, that you would be back homeless again, that you'd be stuck, you know, working for somebody that you hate. What's your biggest fear? about money. Number two question is, if that happened to you, if your worst nightmare was uh, realized, how would you go about solving it? Because by answering these two questions, you start to connect the dots and you're able to uh, see that many of the things we fear don't make any sense because there's always a solution. You should fear the things that there's no solution. Fear death. Fear not putting your seatbelt on because if you get in a car crash and you die, it is game over. But losing some money isn't game over. So answer those two questions that I'll close out this lesson. All right, I have a very special guest I'm about to introduce to you. It's Neil Patel, very famous entrepreneur. If you just Google his name, he started all kinds of huge companies. He's one of the top consultants to mega brands. Uh, he's made God knows how much money, but uh, I'm sure you've... If you've done anything entrepreneurial, you've heard he's a kind of a rock star, and uh, he owns Quick Sprout, the blog. He owns Crazy Egg. He owns Quick Kiss Metrics, and so uh, 
got him here to talk about two things. One, in this money program, uh, I really want to talk about what I call today the transition. So whether you're already an entrepreneur or doing big things, uh, or you are brand new, you're either unemployed, working somewhere, I mean, there's all kinds of variations. Uh, I call this the intrapreneur transition, okay, is what I'm going to be talking about. So people think of entrepreneurs, people who start brand new things, and this is the secret to doing big things. And there's some truth to that. But not everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur, okay, for various reasons. You might not want to take the risk, you might have a family, and you might just work better in a team or innovating within an existing business. So I'm going to bring Neil Patel in here and we're going to talk about the entrepreneur transition and how you can make that. Uh, whether it's even, just to be clear, even if you're already running your own business, there's still a transition that will need, you will need to make with other entrepreneurs who work for you. How do you identify them? You know, how do you identify them within your organization, within what you're already doing? To, to, and you, you'll hear how Neil has done this with uh, and taken parts of his business that were underperforming and let an entrepreneur employee run off and you'll, you'll, you'll hear how one of them uh, just bought a Lamborghini cash from all the extra bonus money that he made. So this is for everybody right now and uh, really listen to his words because this is a very, very smart guy. So let's, we'll talk about today the entrepreneur transition. We were talking a little bit about money. And you've been broke, and yes. you've been in possession of a good bit of money. If you're going back in time, and you're broke again, or don't have much money, what were the one or two things that somebody watching this who struggled with money or just started to make money, what has made all the difference in your life? A few things. One, focus on your passion. If you're really good at something or you love something, you're more likely to spend more time on it, get better at it, and not give up, right? Yeah. Look at Malcolm Gladwell, right? He talks about how many hours you have to spend. Right. 10,000 plus, exactly. 14,000 hours. So why not focus on something that you love? Because if you don't love it, you're not going to spend 10,000 hours. Yeah. It's very hard. For example, you don't like flying on the airplane, right? Right. So once if I told you, if you fly for 10,000 right. hours, you know, X, Y, and Z can happen. It's yeah, like, I would never do it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter how much money you're going to make or little money you can make from it, right? The key is, one, pick something that you like. Yeah. And two, just only focus on that. A lot of people, when they're trying to get back at it with the business, make money, they look at, they have this shiny object syndrome. They're like, oh, someone else is making money here, someone else is doing that, and I could be doing this, and look how successful they are. Just focus on what you're good at, and focus on what you love. Because if you do those two things, and you really try to help people out solve their problems, and you try to solve their problems better and more uh, efficiently than other people, eventually you will do well. What about somebody watching who, who's not yet an entrepreneur? So they're working somewhere else, they've got a family, they've got to produce income, yet they want to do something bigger and want to create, like you said, these automated streams of income like you have. Every time people watch your automated webinar, you two people pay 6000 each, 12000 bucks. It's money on autopilot, but they're not yet there. How do you make the jump without going broke? How would you make the jump? 
So I started when I was so young. I was yes. in high school, but I didn't have any bills. Yes. So I didn't really have to. So keeping the cost down. Keeping the cost down. And because I had no money at the same time, I was working like at Knott's Berry Farm, cleaning the restrooms. Okay. And picking up the trash. <laughs> I hated the job, but I did it, right? So I would say keep your job, find something that you're passionate about, yes. test it out on the side, like create a blog, create a website, whatever it may be, experiment a bit. Yeah. And as you're doing it, usually what you'll find is what you started with isn't what you end up with. Yes. In which you may find a new passion from doing it, or you may find something a better way to make it work, or whatever it may be. And once you figure out, hey, I'm onto something, then you can say, all right, I'm gonna quit and I'm gonna go full force there, but take baby steps. What do you think about the power of being an intrapreneur? So when you don't know what to do, you go work for somebody else who's doing yeah. something that seems to be you know, in your passion. That's a great idea. And you know what the funny thing about entrepreneurship? Corporations actually take care of people. Like if you have this amazing idea saying like, I'm gonna go create like the next iPhone hypothetically, and Apple didn't have an iPhone, and you created it for them. Corporations aren't greedy. They do wanna take care of their staff members. They don't wanna see teammates leave and go to another company. Like it's like a family. Like, hey, you created a great product. You should be with us forever, mm -hmm. right? They do want to compensate you. Look at Apple's lead designer. He does really well. He just bought Steve Jobs' private jet, right? Wow. You could you could be a entrepreneur and do well within an organization. So Look not at, everybody needs to be an entrepreneur. No, Expedia came out of Microsoft. Yeah. Uh, Rich Barton, who wanted to start Expedia, went to Balmer, I think, at the time, mm -hmm. or Gates. It was one or the other. And he's like, I have this idea to create hotels, right? Like where you can just book them online. And he's like, I need $100 million. They said no to him, but they said, you know what? You can create that company and you can use Microsoft's name because back then they were a really hot company. Yeah. Spin it out into his own publicly traded company and raise $100 million on the market. That's how Expedia got started. Yeah, 70% of billionaires worked inside another company for many years. Yes. Joel Salatin used to tell me, make somebody else rich and then you'll do it. You'll make all your mistakes on their dollar and then it'll be very easy to make money for yourself. Did you do that? You were, you're one of the rare breed entrepreneurs that just starts super early and you're a little bit like me. We like, we were entrepreneur. What percentage of people you think have that entrepreneur gene versus intrapreneur? I would say less than like 10% really. Yeah. Maybe more people think they have it, but most people aren't. Right. We had to think about it this way. If someone within your organization did really well for you, wouldn't you take care of them? Yes. Yeah. Like I had this guy named Mike and he created this consulting division. He's like, we get four to 5,000 leads, we do nothing with them, let's try doing something. I'm like, you know, I don't wanna end up doing something. I'm like, you can do whatever you want. He created a business, it did well enough. With his share, he was like, within like a few months, he was able to buy a Lamborghini with cash. Yeah. Right? It's like, he's getting taken care of. He gets 20% of that division. And I'm yep. like, you know what, you created it, it was your idea, go for it. I'm happy for you to keep making money. It's yeah. like you want to take care of the people that got you to where you are too. Yeah. Because nothing is solo, right? Like everyone sees you online and on the web and they're seeing videos of you and you do amazing stuff. But how many other people are helping you out, right? right? And you even give credit to your team too. You don't just say it's just you. Yeah. It's a team effort. Everything is. For sure. Do you, how does somebody, as we kind of wrap up here, somebody sees that, they're working at a dead end job. So maybe they're not going to be entrepreneurs. They're going to go work for a cool company doing cool stuff with potential to grow even within the organization. How do you think you identify those and, and make yourself known and get hired? You have to do something unique, right? So if you wanna work at say at like um, Airbnb, there was a girl who wanted to work there. She created an online video talking about how she would actually improve Airbnb and create the, make the experience better if she was there. Hmm. Like, so she put in some work, she didn't just show up and said, 
Everyone I want to work for you. Yeah, everyone shows up saying I want a job. Everyone submits a resume. When I get emails of people saying, hey, I want to work for you, I want to be your intern, I ignore those emails. When I get emails from people saying, hey, here's how you could have made your product or service better, here's how you could have improved this in your business, here are the mistakes you're making, and by the way, I want to work for you and I want to fix this, I'm like, all right, you're proactive. Right. I want to hire people who are smarter than me. I don't want to hire people that I have to dictate and tell them, go do this to make my business better, yeah. right? It's a team effort. If you do well, you're going to get rewarded very well and you're going to be a team player. So you know what? I want people that can come up with their own ideas, solutions to make the business better. Everyone does. That's yeah. why Google has this, hey, X percent of the time, go do your own thing. Just go figure stuff yeah, out. Yeah, an hour or so a day. Yeah. yeah, so somebody watching this, if you're an entrepreneur and you're already doing your own thing, you want to look to hire these people who stand out. And if you're not sure if you're ready to be an entrepreneur, you need to be the person standing out. And I really think... Joel Salatin used to tell me, uh, no, sorry, Warren Buffett. Joel Salatin said something diff similar, but Warren Buffett said when he got out of college, he thought it would be very hard to be noticed. There'd be so many amazing people. But then he was like, it's not that hard to stand out in the world of so many people being status quo. Yeah, and too many people are lazy. They're just not willing to get up and do something. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for this, my friend. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the time. All right, talk to you guys soon. All right, so it was awesome. Neil was here. We're talking about this entrepreneur transition and something you don't hear a lot about. So to close out this lesson, here's what I want you to answer, okay? Number one, uh, what is an example uh, of you either applying for a job or reading applications for to your business, if you're an entrepreneur, where something, where either you didn't stand out somebody didn't stand out or where something you know really stood out because this is a key thing i always say when i'm hiring people it's like show me something i haven't seen before show me some initiative you know if you're raising investment money you're going out and getting investors if you're getting business partners if you're getting a bank loan if you're getting a business partnership if you're getting an affiliate deal what's an example in the past where you haven't stood out you were just status quo an example where you really have stood out. What did you do? And think about this. It sounds like a simple question. It's more important than you think because you want to plan before the moment comes. You got to be good at being impressive in short periods of time. So number one question. Number two question, are you an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur by nature? Some of you are entrepreneurs by nature trying to be entrepreneurs. That's a mismatch. And some of you are trying to work in, within an organization as an entrepreneur when you're really, your DNA is to be an entrepreneur. So let's talk, what are you, you know, just using feedback analysis. When you've worked with people, have you really enjoyed it? Or you're a little more of a loner, okay? Write that, it's very important to know yourself. Like Sun Tzu said, if you know yourself, if you don't know yourself and don't know your enemy, you'll lose every battle. So it's not just about knowing the competition, it's also knowing about that intrinsic motivation that you have. Okay, so answer those two questions and that will close out this lesson. For those of you who are the, the entrepreneur program and the persuasion marketing program, you're gonna get access to the next talk that I did with Neil where we talked about uh, you know, execution as an entrepreneur and marketing. Two things he is in, one of the best in the world, not just best in California, not just best in the US, but best in the world, okay? So uh, if you don't have access to that, contact, support, 
and, and the help button up here on how to get access to the higher levels. If you are in those higher levels already, I'll see you in just a second. All right, welcome to today's private talk with Tim Grover. You may have seen on my YouTube, I put some public stuff uh, for my podcast, YouTube, and so on. But now this is only for those of you in the program. We're going to be talking about money. Remember, Tim Grover needs no introduction, but if you don't know who he is, all you need to know is Michael Jordan said he's the greatest trainer. Uh, Pat Riley, greatest trainer. Kobe Bryant said Tim Grover, greatest trainer, mentally and physically. So what we're going to talk about here is there's so many ways uh, that we can go with this talk with Tim, but what I really want to talk to him, I'm going to bring him on the line in a second, I want to talk about the weakness that's in all of us. You know, when he started with Michael Jordan, it was for a 30-day free trial, and then Jordan stayed with him for 15 years because Tim Grover knew how to drive the weakness out of these athletes. And for you financially, you and I, we plateau. We plateau financially. We reach the limits of what we think we should earn. And that's why we stay broke. When I was broke, that's the problem. So I want you in today's talk to listen very closely uh, to this new way of understanding the removal of our weak-willed mental state financially. There's a lot of practical things you need to know about finances and real estate and this and that and that and investing in the stock market and taxes and starting businesses and getting investors. But it's all superseded and it's all made null if you're weak. So listen in. Tim, I'm patching you in. Thanks for being on this talk on money. You have made money. You've been very successful in your own business. You've been around the, the, some of the wealthiest people in the world pro athletes, Jordan's now become a billionaire. Let's talk about money from a hot, you're a high performance expert. So somebody here listening in, switching gears from sports and physical to just pure, let's talk money. What are those lessons that you've learned that, and, and I'm going to call this high performance finances, high performance money. What do you think are three things, one, two, or three things that are of the utmost importance to somebody who's maybe broke now, or maybe somebody who has money but has plateaued, you know, so an income is not just working out and Michael Jordan going from 38 inches plateauing there and then you pushing them to 48 inches, but let's pretend you are a financial coach now to someone listening in. What are you, what are you going to be telling people that they have to do so that they don't plateau where they are financially? You know what? We talk about this in the book, Relentless. There's always a next, there's always a next level. All right. People are always searching for answers, you know, and I don't like to be critical about um, other people's, you know, findings and literature and so forth, but everyone's looking for the seven steps or they're looking for 10 things, 10 things to do. They're, everyone's being told what, how to think, how to act, how they're supposed to be nowadays. Everyone forgets about what, what's already inside of you. Okay. A lot of the stuff you already know, going back to the, the, the nutrition thing, just for, for a quick second. Okay. People read all the nutrition books. Okay. 
the, the one thing that's most common in the nutrition books, you got to eat healthier, okay, and you and you got and you got to move, okay. That that's a common theme in all, but no one's gonna lose weight by just by just simply reading a nutrition book. You got to put, you got to have a plan of action, and you got to take that plan of action. You got to actually put it in place. What happens is once people reach the reach the goals. All right. There's no more. There's no more. There isn't another plan for that for that next step. There's no other drive or that other motivation. They they think they've hit they've hit the they've hit the pinnacle. Okay. There's no there is no pinnacle. All right. And on the on the top of the pinnacle is a point. Guess what? You want to get to that. There's a, even a sharper point that you can't see. It's not the point that you get stabbed with. Okay. That. That that hurts is the point you don't get stabbed with is the one you want to conquer. That's the one everybody is trying to is trying to go after. But once what happens is once you hit people hit their quote unquote pinnacle, okay, they don't like the way they don't like the feel of that they don't like the feel of that of that needle or what that unexpected sting is going to be in order for them to get to get to the next level. Everyone is had fail, failures in their life. Everyone gets not. Everyone gets knocked down. Not everyone's been a hundred percent successful at everything. Just like we talked about earlier. Okay, none of us are. None, there's nobody that's that that's uh, sin free in the in this world. All right, but if you those you have to take what what brought you down. Okay, and you got to get you. You know this. It's the old idea. You got to get back up. And you gotta fight. You gotta fight your way. If you did it once, you can do it again. There's reasons for everybody's success. There's a reasons for everybody's failures. Every every decision, every action you do has a consequence. But but for the time, you know what that consequence is before you act on it. All right. You know if you do this, this is going this is going to happen. If you don't do this. This is going. This is going to. This is going to happen. But it's that fear of already talking yourself out of it. Of this, what if? Okay, or I might not be. A, I might not be able to. All right. We have this thing about you know. You have to be. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, uncomfortable. All right. Those are the individuals that. No, so you get you you lie down in a very you're very comfortable bed and it's it's so hard to get to get out of those things, and that's why you see a lot of the big time executives, all right, who have these these monumental chairs behind their desks, okay, that people would just die to sit in, and these individuals hardly ever sit in them. Because when they sit in the chair, it's a position that they're just not accustomed to. That's why they're always kind of standing in their office, sitting on the desk, looking out, looking out the window, because they're in a position of always trying to be uncomfortable. They have to be uncomfortable in a certain situation in order to continue to push themselves to get to that successful result over and over again. So where you are financially, I totally agree with this. I was, there's a famous philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer from the 1800s, and he, he says something like, you know, the limits of your vision are the limits of the world. And then I talk about, you know, Oprah Winfrey, when she 
got her first real job making three or four thousand dollars a month she told her dad i've hit the top this is the most that i we ever dreamed we'd make coming from this poor family and then so somebody financially all of us there's been times in my life i remember going man uh, you know i started a company and i started making some money and i was going my bills are five thousand dollars a month how am i ever gonna pay these you know and then now I own a lot more businesses. I'm, you know, I need to make millions a month just to cover expenses. And I was thinking, same world financially that I lived in. There's more money. I mean, there's always been money in the last 10, 20 years. But the slice of the pie that I considered normal, the limits financially, were self-imposed. I could have been doing that a long time ago. You know, uh, now let's say I need to make. $50,000 a day to break even, in, in depending on which business. Well, I was reading, uh, I got to hang out with Elon Musk, the founder of PayPal and Tesla. And, you know, he, when he just started one of his companies, they needed to make 100000 a day. So even when I feel out of limitations, you go out there and you find somebody and it resets. So let's talk about this. Uh, you have been a coach to the greats. Now, financially, uh, I believe people need coaches. They need mentors. They need people that expand their vision and push them. What is your take on uh, how, do you, how you can find these mentors and how you need to approach them and, and the importance of mentors and coaches? Oh, listen, no, nobody is, no individual out there whether they're in a prof whether they're in a professional business setting, whether they're in a professional sports setting, okay, can push themselves as hard as another individual can. Okay, you may you may think you can push yourself to 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 the ultimate limit. There's usually somebody else behind behind it that's giving you that extra that may it may be just that that point oh one percent that you need. But there's definitely an individual either chirping in your ear all the time, poking up, poking in on your side, that that gets you to that that destination, that's your current value where you want to be. Okay, but then there's that next destination, and then there's that net, then there's that next destination. Everybody needs a mentor. I mean, for me, you know, my mentor was obviously my parents and. One of the, uh, and the clients I had, I learned so much from being around these, these individuals, you know, like a Charles Barkley and a Kim Olajuwon, uh, Dwayne Wade, a Kobe, a Michael, being able to see how they, how they deal with adversity, how they deal with their financial situations. You know, I've been around other athletes who've made hundreds of millions of dollars, and by the time they're done with their careers in their early 30s, um, have no money, and that's because of a lack of discipline and a lack of a financial coach and a lack of a mentor to teach them and to show them and to really put their foot down to say, this is how it has to be, this is how it's going to be, or this is going to be the end, end result. You know, everyone nowadays wants to be so politically correct, and everybody is so sensitive to what other individuals individuals say. I mean, everyone's worrying about hurting so many persons' feelings. And then we, you know, we talk, one of the main points we make in Relentless is emotions make you weak. 
uh, once you once you start getting uh, once you start getting your emotions into a decision, into a factor, it, it, into something you want to tell an tell an individual. All right, it doesn't. The message doesn't come out as strong as as it should. You know, I'm that kind of person that you know. You don't ask me if I look. Don't come and ask a question. Do I look good in this? I'm the one that say no. You don't. Okay, you shouldn't be wearing that. All right, I'm not. You. But here's the thing: if you're asking that question to me, you already know the answer. Okay, so you're looking for someone to reinforce an answer that isn't really true, okay? And I, but I'm the person that's going to tell you, you know, not what, not what you want to hear, what you need to hear. But a lot of individuals now, they're afraid because people have gotten so sensitive in this, in these days and ages, and everything is so politically correct. I call it the age of soft. Everyone is just getting so soft. Not only are they getting soft physically. They're getting soft emotionally. They're getting soft mentally. It's just everybody is just getting S O F P capital. Yeah, and and financially talking about money soft. You know, I was interviewing my first mentor uh, for for one of my programs, Joel Salatin, who I out of high school at 19. I went and lived with him on a farm for two years, and uh, he was not a soft man. And I look back and I'm like, thank God, because the world has become weak-willed. You know, uh, Joel, basically, his approach to life was, you set a goal, you set a strategy, and then you execute no matter what. If you're waking up at 3.30 in the morning, so be it. I remember one of the times that I thought he was a big, strong farm guy. And farm guys are strong as hell, I'll tell you that. I've been, my dad was a... Pretty well-known bodybuilder. You would not want to mess with a guy who's been on a farm for 30, 40 years. And so one day, I, uh, I we first business I ever started, Joel Salatin and I did a business together, a ranch, a farm. And the cows were coming in. And he told me the night before, hey, these cows are going to come in. And so be ready in the morning. We're going to load them in. And apparently, I didn't realize he meant wake up at 3 in the morning. So I set my alarm for 4.30 in the morning like normal. And all of a sudden, I was living in a little cabin in his backyard. He kicked the door down, and he was covered in mud. He had almost, what had happened, he, <clears throat> I hadn't been awake that morning uh, when the cows came in. So he unloaded himself, and, and about 80 cows, and one of them, he got attacked. And a cow will kill you in a heartbeat. And uh, he broke his ribs, and he was about to break my neck. And so that was the last time in my life that if there's something to do, I don't wake up on time. And it takes that. And when it comes to finances, you know, people are in program, this program that I have, it's to serve as that wake-up call to go, like you said, life is very short. You will go very slow if you don't have something or somebody else pushing you and saying, what are we here to do? Get it done. So when people come to train with you, and I think this analogy applies to finances, What's it like? You're not an easy person to, you know, it, like by your own admission, I've seen your book, Jump Attack. These are intense workouts. What do you tell people that are soft? You know, and this applies obviously to finances. We can take this lesson. What, what, how do you, what do you do? Do you just kick them in the butt? What do people need? Well, yeah, it, it's just, you know, basic, you know, the first thing when a client comes to me, I say, have you been working out? Oh, yeah, I've been working out. Okay. 
that everyone always says they've been working out. So then you start taking through some basic movement patterns, which if they've been working out, they should have no problems. They should have no problems doing. Okay. And then you can automatically tell that they haven't been working out. Another adage, what we do right from the beginning is you can't bring your cell phone to the workout. Okay. And people, people freak out because like, what do you mean? I, I can't, I can't have my phone with me. You know, I, I, you know, I got to be able to check my email. No, okay. This is our time, okay. Now, unless you have somebody, you have a uh, an ill child, or you have a family member that's not doing well, that we, we need to keep the phone near nearby. Other than that, nothing else really matters during that time, okay. I have to be able to get you to a level that you can't get to by yourself. Okay, and with athletes, you have a very, very small window. By the time most people are just becoming successful in business or starting to turn that corner into their 30s, our athletes' careers, majority of them are on their downside. So I don't have, I don't have a whole lot of time to, to uh, maximize your physical and, me- and mental well-being for you to get as much from a financial base that you possibly that you possibly can. So I have to go in and eliminate as many variables as possible. The phone the phone being one of them, the entourage being the being the other, you know, all the different distractions that you have, have going on. And these individuals, there's a reason they haven't been able to get to that get to that next step. Okay, but the problem is all the all the other people around them are telling them it's everybody else's fault. Right. Okay, and I always tell an individual, you know, it's not what you see in the mirror that's holding you back. It's what you don't see in the mirror that you're not willing to see. That's what's holding. That's what's holding you back. And once you can once you can break that barrier, if you're willing to break that barrier, then you can get to the then you can get to the next level. Yeah. If you want to make money, I tell people. Get down to business. Get down, you know, when everybody right. else is texting and they're on Instagram. You could, I use Instagram, but I use it to make money. I don't dink around on it. I had some <clears throat> friends over the other day and they brought this girl that I don't know. And she literally sat on the couch and was on Instagram for 45 minutes. And I was thinking, who does that? Well, you know, Joel said, uh, Alan Nation, one of my mentors, used to say, if you're in a room and uh, playing poker, after 30 minutes at the table, if you don't know who the sucker is, you're the sucker. And Instagram and social and texting and distractions and your friends saying, hey, come out, you know, on all the time you being out, these are ways you go broke. And you're the sucker I in have, the room. Yep. I have more athletes. If you're a professional athlete, football player, baseball player, okay, that's your job, okay? Now, if you're trying to manage your Twitter your Instagram, your Vine, your Snapchat, uh, your, I don't know, Pinterest, whatever. You're <laughs> spending more time managing your social media than you are actually the time and effort that you're spending on enhancing your skill to be able to perform at a much, at a much higher level. And that, unfortunately, that's the, way, that's the way it's going now. How many individuals come to you and ask you for a job, ask you to be your intern, ask you to be your work. And the first thing they tell you is, I'm a hard worker. Right. Yeah. Which is like, isn't that, yeah, 
I'm like, wait a minute, it, it, that should be. A, you shouldn't have to tell me that. That should already be a plot. Okay, when did when did hard work become a skill? You know, you you just told a story about being on the, being on the farm. Okay, hard work back then wasn't a skill. It, you didn't have to tell somebody uh, you you were going to work. You 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 had to work hard. This is the same thing about saying every, everything is going soft. So the way now an individual comes into a job interview and separates himself from the average individual, he has to tell you, I'm a, I'm a hard worker. Yeah. You don't have to, don't tell me what you're, what you're, uh, what you, you got to, you got to show me. Yeah. It's easy to, hey, listen, we've, been, we've gone through uh, years and years of evolution. But the one thing that has not changed in price is talk. Talk has always been cheap. Yep. Talk will always be cheap. Like you said, Kobe Bryant doesn't talk. All right, Tim, amazing stuff. To close out today's talk, I just have one question. A lot of time I have two or three. Let's just do one. Let's focus. How can you, how can you drive the weak-willed side out of yourself when it comes to finances? What is weak-willed about you, and what's something you're going to change right now? It can be how you spend your money. It can be being intimidated by going out and getting mentors financially. It can be being like Oprah, where you just can only imagine you're making three or four or five or 10 grand. What's the weakness in you financially? And how can you be relentless and take a cleaner approach? This cleaner, not being a cooler, not being a closer, but being a cleaner when it comes to your financial situation. Answer that, and that will close out today's talk. Thank you, Tim, for being on. And for those of you in the Entrepreneur and Marketing Persuasion, you're going to get access to two more talks uh, that I'm about to do right now. If you're not in that and you want to upgrade, contact the help, uh, my help button here and get yourself in the Entrepreneur or Persuasion. If you're qualified, you can talk to them. All right, thanks so much. All right, welcome to today's talk in the Money Program. I've got a very special guest, Adam Braun. You're hearing right now a segment that is not available to the public. It's not on YouTube. It's not on my podcast. It's only for you in this program. Uh, you've committed to changing your financial situation, whether you're broke now or already wealthy. And we're going to be talking about something really important that's un that is uh, overlooked. Rich people give to charity. Mark my words. I know a lot of them. Now, some give more than others. The richest man in the world gave the most money. Bill Gates gave $40 billion, and magically, after giving that money away, he's back to, the, again, the richest man in the world. But now, under his belt, he can say, you know, he's changed the world. So, I'm going to be talking, bringing Adam on the line. We're going to talk specifically uh, on some concepts of giving, but also, we're going to talk about how to demand your value, whether you work at a, a job, you don't have a job yet, or you're already an entrepreneur, rock and rolly, or you're an intrapreneur, and we're going to get some top, uh, we're going to get some advice on why it's important and what he's found about moving your way to the top one, two, or three uh, in whatever you do, and how that benefits you financially. Okay, it's not necessarily what you think he's going to say. It's very interesting. He's a very smart guy. So, what are some applied tools that you really think are absolutely vital, specifically? For somebody listening, whether they be an entrepreneur or somebody just starting out uh, about money, including, I want to tie this in to your opinion for somebody planning their financial life, 
what percentage do you generally recommend people give to charity? Can they give too much? Can they give too little? Is there a, you know, is there a, a, a spiritual effect of getting more back? Let's talk a little bit on these subjects. So first of all, um, what do you think somebody listening should budget specifically financially to give to the charities that appeal to them, that, that you know, strike them the most as doing the most good in the world? Yeah, so, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of different people about this. So, you know, one of the things that uh, a mentor of mine shared was that um, back at Bear Stearns, which is also now, you know, when Lehman Brothers went under, Bear Stearns went under, too. But one of the things that the senior leadership at Bear Stearns required was that all um, managing directors and senior partners get 4% of um, their annual earnings to charitable endeavors. Huh. And you know, if you're if you're at that level, four percent is actually a ton of money, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty healthy amount. You know, within the Mormon tradition, they have tithing, and a lot of other traditions pick that up, right? So that's ten percent. Um, and then now there's kind of a movement within the tech community called one percent of nothing, which is to give one percent of you know your founder stock in your equity of your company to charity because if it becomes you know a hundred million dollar plus company, you're actually giving you know seven figure contribution. So I think for each person, they have to kind of decide what feels right. But I think the, the important thing is to set a number and then stick to it. And the hope is that as your income rises, uh, the, the value rises as well uh, in correlation based on your decided percentage. So you know, if you're making, uh, I don't know, $50,000 and you decide that uh, 5% is a good number for you, uh, and suddenly that gives you, all right, now I have $2,500 that I can give out to all the different charities that I want to support. You know, I think that that's a, a great place to, to be um, because then if, you know, you're, you can at your income, suddenly you're giving out twenty five grand, you can build a full school with that sort of promise. Hmm. Um, but I, I would say it should be somewhere between, you know, one and ten. I, every so often I hear people going up to 20 or 30. I mean, that's incredibly generous, uh, and I would certainly welcome that as somebody who works in the philanthropic sector. But I think you have to decide what number you are comfortable with. You feel like you are saving. You know, you're not going into debt. Uh, you're taking care of loved ones, your family, or your core responsibilities. You know, you're not accumulating debt on your cars, all that. Um, and then the key, I think, is actually to select organizations that you really believe in and ones that you would want to espouse to others. Because part of the, the uh, effect of getting involved with philanthropy is the internal, uh, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling that we get from knowing that we've helped others in the world. But I think that one thing that people underestimate is how powerful uh, leadership by example can be, and that you catalyze giving in so many other people by demonstrating it yourself. Um, so I, I know I'm not giving you a set, hey, every person should do 10% or 20%. I think each person has to decide where they're comfortable, but they have to make a commitment to stick to that percentage going forward. Do you think it should be a gross? Let's say you're an entrepreneur. Uh, it's always a little trickier if you make a hundred thousand yeah. dollars or a million dollars. You got to pay people. Uh, obviously, if you have a salary, it's a little different. What is your what's your take on that? Uh, again, I, I think it's up to each individual. You know, I know one person who does ten percent of gross uh, at their company, and it's unbelievably generous. Now they have a big company, and so they're giving out millions of dollars a year. Uh, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, I know other people who on an individual side will do a profit. Uh, and again, I, I think it's kind of up to every single individual. You know, profit gets a little bit more tricky because suddenly you, know, you might have to kind of 
contribute up certain expenses in your business in certain years, and then it, it reduces the ability to make philanthropic contributions that might become really central to the culture of your company. So, yeah. you know, again, I think it I think it depends on each person in their unique situation. Um, but I've seen it done both ways. So, in my experience with with charity, it's um, you know I tend to be a pretty logical person, but of all the quote unquote magical things that I've seen anecdotally in my life, giving a, you know, I like your answer about it's not a percentage. I tend to think it's 1% more than you're comfortable is the right number. So mm. for some people. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you think is, the, I mean, I, I you know, th- what do you think is best in this situation? I agree with you that there's no hard and fast answer. The best rule of thumb is that one. Where you a little bit, I forget where I read this, was an interesting quote. <laughs> you want people to a little bit look at you like your CPA and your financial advisor and go, are you sure that's the right number? Now, I don't know yeah. that you want smart people to go, this is insane, don't do this, you're going to you know, not be able to feed your kids or family. I don't think you want to be at that level, but I think it should be that kind of where you look at your own statement, financial statement and go, eh, maybe it's a little bit too much. And then that that's good enough. So for some people listening... You give, and I was at a charity uh, award ceremony at um, Heifer International, a big charity here in Beverly Hills. Yeah, great organization. And so they had on the board where you could text in and give to charity. And so you see some people there, and there was a lot of big name celebrities and stuff. And you see people there that you're pretty sure are given, I have never given before because they're giving like, nine hundred dollars and these are people are rolling it was at the montage you got plenty of people rolling in and rolls royce and bentley's and so for them though i i don't look i don't look down on that i'm like that's i could tell you were uncomfortable you're not used to giving so there you start and life is a progression it's not an absolute number you know definitely definitely yeah i mean one thing that i've definitely seen consistency is you know as somebody who's brought in a lot of contributions as well as doing it a lot myself um, over the years to various organizations. You know, the people that just build it as a, as a kind of um, element of the culture of not only their business, but ideally their family, the returns that they see in their life are exponential. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you, just for you know, an example, being on boards of organizations oftentimes require a given and a get, but the uh, amount of business relationships that evolve out of sitting on philanthropic boards or advisory boards is unbelievable, and I've seen it at Central Promise. What what's happened with between you know business, uh, you know transactions and millions of dollars generated on a personal level um, for people that have gotten involved in either advisory board or our board of directors, and we celebrate that, right? Because it's kind of you know immediately there's this filter of hey, this is a person, and so you kind of trust that they're worthwhile to get into business with. Um, but I, I think the people who perceive making a philanthropic contribution as a value exchange are underestimating how many great things uh, can come back to you uh, when you build it into kind of the culture of your business and ideally your family because then it happens on generations Yeah, for those people listening in and we're in this talk on money, I, I really think that life's about one of the things you want on your tombstone at the end of your life is that mm-hmm. you were you were a mad scientist. I, I, that's something I want on my tombstone. I think every human, that's a, yeah. that's a real honor, as long as it's not literally a mad scientist. But uh, right. and I think you have to go through a stage in your life where you go, I'm going to mad scientist this. I'm going to take you know 18% of this paycheck and try it. And then yeah. if all of a sudden you can't 
feed yourself, you go, that was too much, and you go down. What I tend to find, and it's interesting, I was talking to the CEO of Heifer uh, International, they're like $250, $300 million charity, and we were talking about donors. I said, Pierre, tell me what you've seen. And he said, you know what? It's the richest people who give the most money. And he said, and I said, and I knew where he was going. I said, it's a little like Jim Rohn says. He said, Jim Rohn says, poor people should take rich people to dinner. And, he, and Jim Rohn, who's the life coach, the famous guy who died years yeah. ago, it, it, he said, but people say to him, Jim, I'm poor. Shouldn't rich people take me? And he said, no, you are poor because you never took a rich person to dinner. So it's the same that I feel with charity. People go, well, of course, Bill Gates gives $40 billion of charity. No, it's not easy when you have $70 billion and you're competitive like Bill Gates. Paul Allen said he's met two people of the same competitive level only once. I mean, uh, the only two people you've ever met in life was Michael Jordan and Bill Gates, who's a competitive man. And I thought it was interesting. Bill Gates gave tremendous money and got all these other people like Warren Buffett, who wasn't really that philanthropic. He got him to put money in. Yeah. And now Bill Gates is back to the top. So I think there is a somewhat yeah. magical, and you interpret it whether you want to say it, religious, spiritual, or like you said, purely pragmatic, where by giving, people end up finding out about it and people like you, you know? And so I think, mm -hmm. I, I tend to think you got to be a little careful I mean, I'm conflicted. It's like, do I tell everybody what I give to charity? Then I feel like I lose some of the, you know, some of the, the fulfillment that I get. Um, and so what I've kind of come up with personally, which I've never shared, but I made this appropriate thing. I, I think if you're giving a certain amount, you mentioned somebody making 50 grand, giving 2,500 bucks. I think at least half of it should be given in secret. And then the other half, you can give more normally. And if you end up being acknowledged, I don't think you should. I think you should give zero percent for the strict purpose of PR, except. Yeah. But I think you can. But let's say you pick your number. Let's say it's five percent. So you give half of the five percent completely in secret, and the other half of the five percent you just give kind of normally. And if people find out, they find out. But then, if you want to do a PR thing, great. Just give more than the five percent. Give another five percent and do it with a you know a big bronze statue of you but i think i and i that's just my weird superstition about it i don't know what you think on that <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i think it's not a bad approach i mean i agree i think give for the sake of getting acknowledgement and i do think there is oftentimes you know if you're constantly giving and then kind of flopping it people then begin to have that perception and i think it probably takes some of the joy out of the kind of just just free type of giving that um, I think can be really valuable. But I do think that for a lot of people, there are moments to allow others to be aware of the contributions that you've made because it will inspire them. And then there are other moments to, to do so with uh, kind of anonymity and, you know, without making a big deal out of it. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I, at this heifer, they were giving me this, uh, I forget what it's called, Noble, Noble uh, Globe Award. And I was like, do I want to go accept this? But then I agree with you. A lot of people that follow me are like, "Hey, we've given a lot. Of, we've given money to Heifer." So I, I agree. At some level, you give publicly because if people are kind of following your lead, you end up giving, yeah. you know, ten times more because you get 10 x the uh, the money. Let, let's uh, exactly. Let's, one more thing on this subject of money. Um, do you? And you alluded to this. I like how you said this. At, because you're involved in charity, 
somebody listening, a lot of the people in this money segment are very interested in making more money. Just on a practical standpoint, what's one or two things that you think they could be related to charity or otherwise that have really made you stand out in terms of your financial uh, financial security versus the mistakes you see other people making? Maybe a few choices you've made a lot differently. Sure. Um, so I think maybe two. Uh, so so one of them is to recognize that there's there's only kind of a few ways to achieve really significant financial acceleration, and it's either to uh, own a business or own the vast majority of a business, right? Um, and to be a very early investor in a business absolutely exponential growth and have a piece of that equity um, or to work in one of the handful of industries like financial real estate where the top probably 20 to 25 percent all see huge reward right mm-hmm. uh, and so with that in mind I've kind of seen that since I was a kid starting businesses and so part of it for me was just to decide that I, I always wanted to um, be in one of those positions so that I would always be financially secure so all the jobs that I've held have always been under that criteria Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I primarily worked in finance and I worked in management consulting, which is an industry that like pretty much everybody, you know, especially if you work at a top firm, you have a, a solid income. But then when I left to do tens of promise, all these people kind of looked at me and were like, are you crazy? How are you ever going to support yourself? And one thing that I knew, because I thought research, you know, you can look at the data online, is that people that uh, are the number one or two at large scale um, nonprofit organizations make solid six-figure salaries. And uh, those organizations have to then generate millions and millions in revenue. Uh, so, you know, these people on the for-profit side would have, you know, been paid millions and said they make a fraction of it. But they're not paupers, right? I mean, they're, they're kind of comfortably, they're just not fantastically wealthy. And so I just recognize that literally in every single industry, including nonprofits, which, which I like to think of as for purpose, but including, or, uh, you know, an industry that calls itself a nonprofit, if you are one of the top one, two, or three people in a high-growth, high-performance organization uh, or company, you will be well-compensated. And so I just always you know, committed that I'm going to be a number one, two, or three in a high-growth, high-performing company, even if that means I have to start myself. And so that's a decision a lot of people, they just don't understand that that's the reality of the world, that you have to be in uh, one of those roles or in an industry that rewards you or an early-stage investor in a high-growth company. And then the second thing I think that was kind of um, transformative for me was uh, that I started uh, essentially, um, at first I, I was uncomfortable that a lot of people are, but um, demanding what I know my worth is for the services that I can uniquely provide and be exceptional at where others cannot. And so in my case, that was um, public speaking. You know, I, I think I'm you know, very, very effective on stage. I've spoken in front of now probably over 100,000 people at various events. And uh, I've seen other speakers, and I've seen you speak, Ty, and I think you're also like a top 0.01 percentile speaker, so am I. Um, and, I, you know, a, a couple of probably our mutual friends are in that category. And I just realized, you know, something, this is something that I love doing. It brings a lot of value, and it's something that I can eventually make a living off of. And so found a speaker's bureau, and they started to charge uh, enough that it was something that I could support my family, which eventually allowed us to hire a different CEO, kind of almost really run and sustain the organization. And I think a lot of people don't decide for themselves that, hey, I'm going to find my one unique skill that I can outperform the vast majority of other people on and then charge a premium on it. 
and they always underestimate their value. And I think until you're willing to recognize how strong your value is in a marketplace and charge at a premium level for it, um, you'll always be struggling. Yeah, that's great advice. I think thanks for the compliment. I'm not sure I'm in the top percent, but I do try to to uh, get message across. And I think that what you were saying on you know, a lot of people ask me, is everybody meant to be an entrepreneur? And I agree with you where I go, no, not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur. You can be an intrapreneur. Steve Ballmer was the number three in. So he was, uh, you know, you had Paul Allen and Bill, Bill Gates, number one, Paul Allen, number two. And Steve Ballmer did all right for himself. He just bought the Clippers and made 20 plus billion dollars as an intrapreneur innovating within the entrepreneurial venture started by Gates and Paul Allen. All right, Adam, thanks so much. Check out his book, The Promise of a Pencil. We're going to be talking to him. For those of you in the entrepreneur and the marketing persuasion, uh, you're about to get access to two more segments. So if you're not in those, you may want to email support, email your uh, onboarding rep from my company, and uh, you can find out how to go in the next two segments. But to close out this, very important question for you. I want you to answer these, the complete. Remember, this is about not just listening. This is about making actual changes. There is no change without a change of routine. One of the things I want you to ask yourself and answer and think about right now is what percentage of your income, let's say gross income, are you gonna get, pick a number. It should be a little bit more than you're comfortable with. For some of you never given any, that's 1%. For some of you already used to give them five, maybe it's seven. What's your number you're gonna stick with? And let's just do it for 30 days. I want you to be a mad scientist as I talk about an experiment. That's number one, what's your number and who are you gonna give it to? Just make a 30-day plan. Number two, what is an example of a current situation you're in where you're, you've never demanded your value? Now remember, you don't wanna demand more than you're worth. Some people, I've had people come and work for me go, I should be paid $500,000 a year, and they were delusional. But let's, a delusion aside, what is an area of your life? It could be financially, it's primarily what we're talking about, but it could be socially, it could be in a relationship where people are not treating you and rewarding you uh, in an equitable way and what you're going to do about it, okay? Write that number two. We always have this. And number three, why have you not always been the top one or two, one, two, or three in the things that you've done? And the answers are very simple. It's either you've been doing the wrong thing that you're not good at and have no potential to be good at, or as Charlie Munger says, sloth and unreliability. You've been lazy or you've been unreliable. So it's usually those two broad areas, something, an internal problem or a problem where you, you're a systemic problem. What is an example? Right now, are you the top one, two, or three, or have the potential to move really quickly in that direction in what you're doing? If not, what are you gonna do about it? Are you gonna stop doing it? Like Jack Welch said, if you're not the top one or two, and anything, he sold that business. He said, forget it. So. Scooter, uh, Adam was just talking about the absolute vital importance of being top one, two, or three in whatever you do, okay? Talk to me about that in the comment below in your action plan. Is it gonna be, you're gonna cut something out or are you gonna resolve to get rid of procrastination, sloth, and unreliability and move in the direction of being top one or two or three in, in those things that's your core competency? All right, answer those and that will close out. And for those of you in entrepreneur and persuasion level, I'll see you in a second. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's uh, we're talking accelerator. We're talking all all kinds of subjects. 
I want to start with the subject of real estate, which is, for whatever reason, I would say 90% of people in the world, when you talk about making money at some level, inevitably it comes back to real estate. So I have brought Cole here. He is has made a lot of money in real estate. We're also going to talk, for those of you in the entrepreneur and uh, marketing and persuasion, he's a, a master of selling from the stage. So you sold, what, $100 million? Mm-hmm. In the last from the, three years. In the last three years, sold $100 million of various things, consulting programs and high-end packages. So uh, make sure you tune in for that. But I want to start and, and just let you talk on... Uh, You've done a lot of real estate. You're down in Orange County. Yep. And um, maybe we'll start by just going a real quick background because we have people of varying uh, you know, levels where you are right now, whether you're completely broke or you're already rocking and rolling. When it comes to the subject of real estate, financial planning, everybody should have some real estate in their financial portfolio. Absolutely. What have you learned like, what would you say, because I like to start with the best stuff kind of at the beginning. What would you say, you just, congratulations, you got a daughter on the way? Yep. A second yep. daughter? Yeah, I found out 12 hours ago that baby number two is coming as a girl, so excited about that. That's awesome. So if this was, today's your last day on the planet, you're going to go up in Elon Musk's uh, SpaceX and go to colonize Mars, and you had to leave advice for your two daughters on specifically the subject of real estate in your financial portfolio, what would you tell them? All right, as far as financial advice specific to real estate, you already talked about it. You can't go far uh, in affluent communities without finding real estate. Whether they be making their money in things unrelated to real estate, they're sticking it there. Or people like myself that are not only making it, they're also sticking it in real estate. Yes. Um, statistically speaking, the number one place where you can find a net worth of an American is in real estate, yes. uh, whether it be equity in their primary residence or in their portfolios. So uh, it's a great wealth builder. And for individuals like yourself and myself, it's a great tax strategy as well. It's one of the only things in the world where you can actually show a profit uh, or make a profit, but show a loss on paper through the deductions um, legally. Well, yeah. so, so another great reason for people who are making great money, regardless of where it's coming from, to go and buy real estate is because it's a great tax sheltering vehicle as well. So uh, if it was the last piece of advice I could give my daughter who I know and the one that's coming in March about real estate specifically would say, number one, get an education. I don't think people really respect real estate enough. They think, hey, I live in a home, so how hard can it be? But like any industry, there are a lot of ins and outs and there's a lot of nuances that you need to know to not only do it legally but not lose money yeah. so i tell them to you know build their foundation of really learning and studying under experts who are doing it at the highest level yeah. uh, to really again lay that foundation of knowing what it is that they're doing and then i would tell them whether it be passively just having some rentals or actively flipping real estate definitely be involved forever uh, in my career i've exclusively done real estate and I've had seasons like now where it's just a part of what I'm up to. Yeah. But real estate will be something I do forever. Yeah. Uh, even if I, you know, decide to start other companies, of, you know, like Elon Musk's flying people to space has nothing to do with real estate. I'll still be doing real estate. And so my advice to them would be, participate at some level always and never, never get out of it. Yeah. And and it's the the thing. There's that old saying. I forget who said it. It was like Mark Twain or somebody. He goes, you know, buy real estate. They're not making any more land. Yeah. So you always have supply and demand. Now let's talk about, I was just listening to a, you know, believe it or not, Donald Trump's such a controversial guy. If you go to some of his old school books, he has some great books. He has this one, it's like, 
forget what it's called. It's like how to be a billionaire or the billionaire mind or something. And let's talk about location. So there's different schools of thought. For example, Donald Trump's, Trump's father, who was very wealthy, uh, he's told Donald, do not invest in Manhattan because at Manhattan, why would you, he said, son, I can buy land, I can buy uh, property in Brooklyn, Queens for a buck a square foot or something, and you're going to Manhattan, and Donald Trump bought the most expensive stuff. Obviously, Donald Trump made money, and his dad made money, so there's multiple approaches. But what, let's talk about location, location, location. Let's just talk about, I like to bring on experts like you about what's worked for you, and, and it'll apply to a lot of you, some sure. of you, it won't apply to you. What's your take on location? Do you go, do you just stick locally to where you know? Do you go national, international? Do you just buy really high end, low end? What do you think? Sure. I think specific to location uh, is determined by your exit strategy. What's your plan? So if I'm going to buy and hold, if I'm going to buy a rental property that I plan to own for five or more years, location's everything. Yes. Another part of what I do in real estate is I'll buy, fix, and sell. Uh, and although obviously location matters, we in real estate have areas called war zones, right? Okay. Where, you know, that's not picking on the demographic that lives there. All types of people, you know, size, religion, race, you know, live in these communities. But if you are a real estate investor, it's a business. Yeah. And so if you're going to own a business, you don't want to open it in an area where you're not going to have customers. And yeah. so when I'm buying to fix and sell, I have a lot less thought of where I am specifically geographically buying. So you'll buy lower income neighborhoods. Or even higher. Sell. So let's talk higher. higher. Okay. So I can buy a beautiful luxury home here in Los Angeles, uh, buy it and turn around and sell it. I just have to do the due diligence to make sure that there's a market, you know, to it on the back end. Once yeah. I've fixed it up and I'm now remarketing for sale, and right now with the season that we're in, you know, all things look good. There's really not a price that you can come up with in LA that there isn't someone willing to pay for it. But in the rental market, here's what we saw in like 2008 specifically, and any of your audience who. Uh, lost money in 2008. Yeah. Here's a lot of what happened. If you were buying at the high end, as our socioeconomic ladder, as people were downgrading because they were losing jobs or whatever, if you were at the top end, you lost a large pool. Where if you were somewhere in the middle, and again, obviously location based on we're talking middle price point, not necessarily first time home buyer, but middle price point areas, even if those people were going through the recession and no longer afford or able to afford those, the people that were above them are now downgrading and can't. Yeah. And so, as far as buy and hold, I would say location matters. Uh, within each city, there's the areas that are affordable. There's the luxury homes, but then there's that middle staple, middle class America home. That's where I love to buy and hold. Okay. Because no matter what's happening, again, on the socioeconomic ladder, we're in a recession, people are downgrading, they people still from have the top to yeah. are gonna have to live somewhere. Yeah. And if you're in the food, water, or shelter business, you're gonna be good through any economy. Yeah. I'm in the shelter business. Yeah. Unless I price out my marketplace, I have a beautiful home here in Beverly Hills or in you know Malibu on the cliffs yeah. for you know a, a house I'm selling for 50 million or rents for 100 grand a month. Yeah. Well, then obviously in area eras like 2008, it's gonna be harder to find someone yeah. versus that 2,000, 2,500 square foot home. You might not want to we're in my backyard. You may not want to start with the highest end stuff unless yes. you got a lot of money to put down, which leads to financing. Somebody watching. Uh, what are creative ways at different levels when you were just starting out? How do you get the down payment? How do you get the bank loans? And then when you became more intermediate, you had a little bit of cash. How'd you leverage that? And sure. then when you're at kind of the level you're at now or you're very sophisticated, what do you do? How has that changed? Let's start with the beginning. Yeah, so that's perfect for me. I started broke. I was 21 years old when I started doing real estate. I was a firefighter, got in a car accident, put me in a wheelchair. Firefighting was out. And obviously today I'm healthy, but 
for that first year, we didn't know if I'd walk again or whatever. Um, and so when I turned to real estate, I had uh, no money at all. And yeah. so I had to raise money. And the fastest way for people to, to generate capital, and what you need to understand is that there's two different types of financing. There's traditional, yep. Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Chase, walk in there, full doc, you know, two years of tax returns, credit scores, financial statements. But then there's a whole nother world of, of financing called creative financing, where individuals like yourself who are well off know better than to let money sit around, right? Yeah. And, and the more affluent people become, the smarter they are with their financial resources. And so someone like yourself who has a business that sells and you, you've stumbled across, you know, a million, a few million dollars, the last thing you're going to do is just go stick it in a checking account. So people like yourself will be what we call private lenders who yeah. lend your money out at eight to 12 to maybe even 15% interest. So then instead of sitting there doing nothing, it's now invested in real estate, where in the state of California, what's called a deed of trust, in other states it's mortgage deed, um, and a promissory note, which fully secures your money and protects you from any losses. Um, you know, let's say I take your money and I run to Mexico, at least you have a house to foreclose right. on and, and get your money so the back. Private, so the people that would be lending you money, hard money or whatever it might be, these people, uh, you can assure them, look, you've got access to the house if it doesn't work out you're kind of like oh, the yeah. bank they're fully secured insured and collateralized if the yep. house burns down you're the lost payee on the insurance policy yep. so i would tell for beginners uh to because even if you have a great credit score and, and verifiable income banks will only give you four to six mortgages in today's lending environment okay so you've got to go to creative and so the first place to start are hard money lenders yes uh and they are more interested in the numbers and the deals than your personal number i have raised in my career millions and millions of dollars for real estate and almost never had to show credit scores or bank statements. It's all so about the deal. what do they care about specifically? Uh, the, the numbers on the deal. So uh, what they want to know is the ARV, which stands for after repair value. If I was going to borrow a million dollars from you mm -hmm. uh, because I'm buying a house in Woodland Hills for 850 grand and have to put 150 into it, so we're going to be in it for a million, but I showed you that the comps in that neighborhood are going for 1.2, 1.3. Yes. You know that even though you're buying the house for 850 and paying for me to fix it up for 115, it's a million dollars of yours in money and none of my own. Yeah. You know that if I pay you back with interest, you're gonna make 10, 15, 20,000 worth of interest, so you'll be excited. Yeah. If I don't pay you back, yeah. you're gonna sell the house for 1.2, 1.3 yeah. and make two, $300,000 on your money. Yeah. And so even though you would wanna build a relationship with me, you would be looking more at the numbers in the deal yeah. and that you're only lending 80% ARV, which is again the after repair value, that there's that buffer that if I died, heaven forbid, in the middle of that transaction or just decided to run to another country, you're only into it for a million bucks. It's worth 1.2, 1 1.3 and you yeah. have that margin. So that's why banks want you to put money down. Exactly. In 2008, you were able to get away. Some people with not only no money down, but they were immediately refinancing and getting money, which leads inevitably to bubbles. So somebody's watching and they go, you talk about getting loans, traditional, you can get three, four, five, or hard money. What if, does somebody need to have money down? And if they don't have it, if you don't have money down, what did you do when you didn't have money initially? Did you so, borrow that from somebody? Yeah, so I'm gonna talk very basic, and for those that understand real estate, they'll know this. You can have multiple mortgages against a single home. It can, it's your first position, second position, third position, yep. lien holders. And so hard money lenders typically won't go more than 75% right now, right. which means you're gonna have to come to the table with at least 25%. So if it's a $100,000 house, you're gonna have to write a check for 25 grand. So exactly. A million, so. But what about individuals like me that were 21 and didn't have that 25%? Yes. 
So that's where the second position lender comes in, and we that's typically private money. Yes. And so those people are found all over the country. There are lists of private lenders out there you can buy online. They're, they're not that hard to find. I'm a private lender personally yep. um, and have lent you know, over my career a lot of money to a lot of individuals, even yep. in a second position, yep. because let's just say that you're the hard money lender and you would only give me 850000 for that Woodland Hills home, and I needed that other 150. The private lender would bring the 150 to the table, so I would be in for zero, because the private lender also understands, even though the first lender is in the first position, has the first right to collateralize, there's enough money above and beyond the yes. first position's debt yes. that the second position will be covered as well. And yes. so what I've done in my career starting out, and now I'm in the financial position that I, I can just pay cash for these homes, or I have the relationships with people that will fund the entire deal, yeah. my purchase, all of it. Yeah. But getting started, my hard money lenders I went to, that charge you know anywhere between 10 and 15%, one to five points on the money they're lending me, yes. Uh, will only go up to 75%. So it was up to me to build a network of private lenders, people who have 100, 200, 300,000 sitting in a checking account doing nothing for them or yes. in a CD getting 0.25%, which is worthless, yeah. and showing them and explaining to them how their money is going to be safe, protected, again, with the instruments, the promissory notes, deeds of trust, etc., and uh, getting them to put that second position in where, I mean, to, to date, when I'm borrowing money, I would say less than 10% of the deals I've ever done I've put any of my own money in. I'm either yeah. using all my own money yeah. or all someone else's. Very yeah. rarely, less than 10% have I ever borrowed someone's money and put my own in as well. Yeah. And it's just a matter of either finding the one lender that will, which there are a lot of those out there, but if you're just cold calling, you know, walking into a hard money lender, and that's a great term to Google because there are yeah. hard money lenders everywhere in every city, uh, they'll only be planning that they'll only go up to about 75% or so. Um, and that you're going to have to find that second position lender. Yeah. And those are typical. And that could also be a friend, a family member. That's typically, yeah, who yeah. I would go to. Yeah. And so, and we're going to talk a little bit later, uh, and, and for those of you who are in the higher level in the accelerator, how to be more persuasive, because this is where persuasion comes in. But coming totally. back, coming back to real estate. So, somebody, uh, the next stage uh, is understanding. And everybody that goes through my programs, I want you to think of yourself as a value investor. This is what made Warren Buffett the second or third richest man in the world for a long time. So what value investing, the fundamentals that Benjamin Graham and then later people like Warren Buffett have refined is the understanding that you can know everything we're talking about now. You can know how to get a loan. You can know how to identify whether it's high level, mid level uh, or lower income communities to buy in. But at the end of the day, the safest way to invest is buy something that's worth a hundred grand and buy it for fifty. Yeah. So everybody knows that. We know if if you have not lived under a rock, you know buy low, sell high. So the trick is, and what value investors perfect is the art of knowing what is something really worth. So one of my mentors used to tell me, and this was just a very rough rule of thumb. It doesn't always apply. He would say it's a place be careful if it's selling for let's say more than 10 or 15 times what it would rent for and this advice even though it's just a general rule of thumb is why i've never i never have been hurt in recessions my main uh investment portfolio is not real estate but i do own real estate and own houses across the united states and stuff uh some of them i live in and some of them are investment properties and Let's say I know I can rent a house. Let's say a mid-level house. You know you can rent it out for three thousand a month. That's thirty-six thousand a year. Mm -hmm. So if you did ten x on that, that'd be a three hundred and sixty thousand dollar home. So you take your calculator out, annualize it. So if it's two thousand a month, that's twenty-four thousand a year, and multiply by ten. Now, 
So that means that's a rough estimation of the value. And why I knew there was a recession coming is because stuff in Miami, I used to live in Miami, I knew people throwing them, people commit, my lawyer had all kinds of clients throw themselves out of, out of uh, windows and commit suicide because they bought condos that they could rent for four grand a month, let's say. So what's that a year? 50,000. You're gonna have some vacancy, but let's say 50,000. So a 10X rule would be it's worth 500,000. A 15X rule would be it's worth 750. They had paid 2 million for it. Yeah. So there's a saying that Warren Buffett says, which is when the tide comes in, you see who's swimming naked. And what 2008 was, was a exposure, not of everybody, but of many people who paid too much on day one. And so there's a lot of profit to be made in day freaking one. That's why when I buy Ferrari or Lamborghini or Maserati, or maybe I'm working on gonna get a Bugatti, I get them with 400 miles on them. Why? Because if I buy a brand new Ferrari, like the one I have, let's say it's 370 or 350, if I let someone else drive it for 200 miles, I buy it for 330. I'll let somebody drive it 400 miles for 40,000, even if you have money, remember, don't act rich, uh, even if you have money. Always act intelligently and logically. So, I've been long-winded here, but I wanted to set this up for your expertise, which is that rule of thumb 10, 15, that's a rough and it doesn't always work. How do you go in and go, I'm not paying too much for this property? Sure, so, and it's so funny you say that about cars as I'm listening to you, I do the exact same thing. In my life, I've had Fabulous automobiles, but never once have I bought one with no miles on yeah. it. So funny to hear you say I that. I have once, and it pissed me off. I bought a Maserati once like that, and then the one year later, it was worth 80 grand less, and I'm like, or 50 grand, I'm like, this is bullshit. So, yeah, 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 no, it's so funny that you say that. Um, and so, so to answer your question, what we do in real estate is we have what are called comps. Uh, yes. So it, to know what a value is, um, you look at the comparable properties, and yes. so... And this is you know, similar in, in all areas of business, but if I'm gonna buy a house, like those inflated prices in Miami, because I know people in the high rises, it's the same thing happened in Las Vegas that just bought and then lost their shorts, literally. Yes. Um, you gotta look at what the comparable properties are going, and then you have to look at trends. So in that moment, if someone was paying $2 million for a, a condo that rented for 4,000, if they look at the comparable properties, they're all going for 2 million. But what were they doing 10 years ago? Yes. They're probably selling for 700,000 or even less than that. And so you need to, on a chart, see whether we are seeing hyperinflation or not. Yes. Uh, because that's what we saw and that's what created the bubble. Basically, loans became so easy to get in 2003 through 2007 that owners realized, hey, everyone's got money all of a sudden, let's jack prices yes. up. And if you look at it, it's a bell chart. It literally goes up and then back down in 2008, 9, and 10 of what the bubble was. So you can't just look at the comps in the moment. You need to look at the market trends as well yeah. to see what's happened. Uh, the thing with real estate is there's no such thing as a crystal ball, but the best indication of what's coming is what's been. Yeah. And so number one, take a snapshot of the marketplace for the home you're considering buying. What do all the other like properties, just like this home, same size, bedroom, bathroom, same area that have recently sold, sold for, and what have the trends in that neighborhood done? And there are, there are markets within the country. Uh, we have a home in Memphis, Tennessee right now that prior to the recession did very little and after did very little. We're talking moved by like 3%. Hmm. So when the coastal areas like here in California, Miami, New York, were just getting murdered in 2008, 9, and 10, property values going down by 60, 80%, Memphis, Tennessee saw very little at all. Yeah. And so when you look at their comps in the moment and then look at their market trends, it just kind of, you know, California is like this and like this. 
where middle America is more kind of just, eh. So if you want to have a safe staple for your portfolio, you know, you mentioned that you own homes all across the country. I do as well. If I want to just be able to buy a house, stick a tenant in it, and put a property manager in place and forget about it, I'm going to go more central in, the, in America, more Midwest, Central America, where we don't see massive swings like we see here coastally. Coastally, yeah. I might focus more of the in and out strategy, buy it, fix it, and sell it within a three to five month period. Uh, so that even if there's a big swing happening, I'm in and out quicker than I get caught, like Warren Buffett said, you know, swimming naked. Um, and so that's a what big about thing international? Have you done any international people? Want I, I'm getting a place in London. Uh, let's talk about that, and then after that, let's talk about your projections here. Are we in bubbles? Are is it a good time to buy? But let's let's start real quick on this international. So personally, I've lent on deals that are international. I have money right now on a property that's happening in Ireland. So I've been the, the money, the lender. I've okay. never actually owned. Uh, when I almost did was right before the recession and um, just south of the border here in Mexico down in Rosarito, there was big condo things going on where you could buy a you know, 270 degree view for like 270,000 bucks and we were all like, oh, let's do it. And then lucky for me, things changed before I pulled the trigger and those, you can still see those projects in Rosarito, half developed, just cement, not even finished and all the investors lost their money. So. I've made enough money in America that personally I've only bought here, although yeah. I know there's tremendous opportunity internationally, but I have lent money internationally. I have, like I said, some loans out right now. And so from a but passive But you like America as a, as a solid investor. There's just so much opportunity here and there's so yeah. much diversity. Yeah. Uh, we have every type of property in the world here. You can buy raw land and develop on it. You yep. can buy commercial, you can buy multifamily, you can buy single family. Like there's, there's no type of real estate investment strategy that doesn't exist in America. Yeah. And we have some of the best opportunities right now, as I'm sure you're aware, we have a lot of international investors coming here. Yeah. Canadian, South American, China, China yeah. Australians are so all coming Saudi to America. Saudi Arabia, Middle East money. Exactly. And so, so, you know, we have a home turf advantage here. I know, again, that there's phenomenal investments around the, around the world, but there's so much money to be made in my own backyard. I've done very well here. And, uh, you know, outside of lending you money to go buy your house in London, I, uh, I've just continued to make I'm money. I'm going to take here. you up on that. Yeah, right on. I'm going to fund some property. I just charge 50% interest, so, so <laughs> not, not a big deal. I think I'll use my own money. <laughs> yeah, then, we, could, we could sign paperwork like today. I feel like 50%. Uh, so let's go to this trends. Yeah. Now, I want you to understand something. Uh, it's somewhat of a fool's game to predict the future. Totally. Um, except with a few, I'll, I'll give you my opinion, because people ask me this about the stock market. They ask me this about... I just had Jason Samet on the phone uh, on the on the program. If you guys didn't see that, make sure you check it out. He's he's raised eight hundred million dollars. Oh, that's it. For, yeah, and he's the CEO of a publicly traded company. He was, I think, the CEO of Universal. He's also a professor at USC of of entrepreneurialism and trends specifically. Um, and so, the trends, the best way to predict trends that have worked the best is by demographics. So. If if a, if a state, people are moving out or moving in, uh, or if it's aging, Japan, uh, Europe, Germany, not having many kids, so you get aging. So this is the one thing that I do like trends. You don't want to follow the Fox News trends. So you're an expert, and let's let's talk about this. I don't want to talk too long because then people think that they can predict the future. But right. what are some things that you're kind of hanging your hat on as a real estate investor? So like you said, there's no way to predict the future. In 2006 and seven, everyone thought real estate would just keep going on and on and on forever. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, the subprime implosion. 2008, everyone got caught. Like you, I always use that Warren Buffett quote with the tide going out and see who's swimming naked. So there is no way to 
um, with absolute certainty predict the future. That's the reality. Uh, but we can for the short term and the immediate. The beautiful thing about real estate is unlike the stock market, which is another great place to put money if you choose to, and I have some stock, uh, it doesn't change as quickly. I mean, we can have right. a stock crash like that uh, about three weeks ago from yeah. filming this. It lost like a thousand Huge, points yeah. or something. Yeah. That's not going to happen in real estate. We're not going to see a 50% decrease in a week or two. Real estate is so massive and so robust that it's like turning a huge ship with a little rudder. You can yeah. kind of start to see it turning with enough that if you've done it correctly, you can start to strategize and play to, to dump properties or, or not dump, but to start eliminating properties that were higher risk, et cetera. Um, so, you know, here's what I would say is you, you talked about it before. When you see ridiculous things happen in the marketplace, like in Southern California, um, in Barstow, I remember in like 2005, properties were seeing like 200% appreciation. Yes. When you see things going on like that, I'd be very careful. To quote Warren Buffett again, who I know you love the quote, quote, he says, when people are greedy, he gets scared. Yes. When people get scared, he gets greedy. When you see just yes. a bunch of people just getting easy money, stated income, stated asset loans, buying houses, 100% financing, um, I would be very cautious. Yes. Again, could it go on like that for years? Sure, but that's the signs that things are overinflated. Yes. Um, so I would be very careful. Uh, when you see things or, like now, where the lending environment is much more strict, uh, real estate values dropped and now have stabilized to what I think is a healthy marketplace. You know, now all indications say go. So again, you wanted to be brief because I would hesitate to give any advice for someone to predict the future and then I say something, they go and lose money. Um, but you know, just be very careful of, of being aware. And then, and then there are little pseudo bubbles and then there are little demographic pops too yeah. where here in Los Angeles, it's such a large marketplace that there are markets that did well even through the recession and then others that did worse. And so just know your neighborhood, not even your city, know your neighborhoods you're investing yeah. in. And then just be aware of everything that's going on. Don't watch the news, put boots on the pavement, talk to brokers, talk to agents that are experts in those neighborhoods and have been a, a broker in Los Angeles for 35 years. That's how Arnold Schwarzenegger did it. He started walking around Santa Monica with realtors. Yep. He became a millionaire before the movies, before, not from bodybuilding. This was awesome. So we're going to continue this talk in the next segment for those of you in the entrepreneur. And we're going to talk a little more advanced real estate of building a real estate investment business. What we've been talking about today is applicable to everybody. That's why it's in the money side of this. Everybody who wants money or needs money, which is 100% of the planet, we all must feed ourselves and our, and our families. Uh, you've learned today about understanding the beginnings. And we'll continue to talk about this through the program different people. I wanted to bring Cole in because he's such a good story of just rags to riches uh, and a friend of mine and local here. And so that you could see, you know, from fireman, accident, no money, boom, millions and millions of dollars in deals. So to close out this segment, I want you to answer three questions. Number one, number one, uh, why have you been intimidated by real estate? This is a very interesting question that I once asked myself when I really was getting started out. And for the most part, it's solved today by you listening to this and just seeing, uh, you know, it's not someone with a PhD. It's not somebody like Donald Trump whose father was in real estate. Yeah. So what, what's your fear? And there's usually a reason. Maybe it's you read an article about people who lost money. It, you had a friend who did something wrong. It sounds intimidating. What, what's your reason? You, you must over, like Alexander the Great said, there's only two types of people in the world. People who conquer fear and people who don't conquer fear and suffer and die. So you don't want to suffer financially from a false intimidation from the subject of real estate. So what's your, number two question, 
for you is uh, if you don't have enough money to put down 10, 20, 25, 30%, uh, What's your strategy over the next 30 days to start talking to people? You gave some examples. You can literally Google hard money lenders. B, you can go down to your local bank where you've done a bank, uh, where you've banked for a while, Bank of America, Chase, wherever, HSBC, if you go. Walk in and make an appointment and find out. Just start chatting. Form a relationship with your banker. So 30 day, next 30 days, what are you going to do to get momentum around the financing aspect? And number three, of the conversations we had on the different type of real estate, what kind of strikes your fancy? Do you want to buy and hold for the long term and rent them out? Do you want to buy raw land and develop from the ground up? Do you want to buy, you know, fi fixer uppers and flip them? What what's your uh, what is your preference just now? Well, you can always change this, and why? And then the fourth question is, what are you not going to invest in? Because you must always. People always tell me what they're going to do. I'm like, yeah, but no one can get everything. So tell me what you're not going to do. I meet people that want everything. I'm like, hey, welcome to planet Earth. You can get anything you want, but you can't get everything. So what are you not going to do in real estate? For me, for example, I don't particularly love uh, being a major tenant. Like, uh, I mean, be a major uh, having a lot of tenants. So I don't love real like buying apartment buildings. Uh, I somehow, some, you can see in my house, I like sometimes to have peace and quiet and you can have a property manager, but I like raw land and I have a lot of experience around agriculture and stuff. So that's what I would do and what I don't care for, is, but you could be totally different. So answer those four questions. Make sure you watch this again. There's a lot of, you gave a lot of knowledge in a short, compact time here. So answer those. And then those of you in the entrepreneur, if you're not an entrepreneur or persuasion, email my help and get in the higher levels. You're going to need to know this stuff. We're now moving to advanced real estate. All right, here we go. All right, Gary, I've got you here. This is the private premium level. This is the money part of the accelerator. So just so you know, as you're watching, this is only available to you. All those people on YouTube that listen to a little bit of this free, they're not getting the next part where Gary's giving more in-depth stuff on financial stuff. So this is for you. If you don't know who Gary is, if you didn't hear, where he's talking about his book. Uh, this is a privilege. He has the he built the largest real estate company in the world. It used to be in America, but he corrected me. Now it's in the world. Um, he's built. You know, he started at a very young age. We're gonna learn his take on everything you need to know about money, financial planning, specifically about real estate too. Specifically, so there's so many things we need to focus on uh, at various times in life, your family and your health, but. Money is one of those, I call them the domino effect focus. You focus on that one thing and multiple things. And if you don't focus on it, okay, lots of other things start to fall apart. So what are one well, or two things? About, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask, are we talking about money from your job or money from investing? So specifically for somebody, financial planning. So whether you're an entrepreneur or you have a job, what are those things you've learned uh, about focusing Money-wise, the well, one thing about money. Okay, well, <laughs> the one thing about money is is, is um, understand it. Mm -hmm. Most people are financially illiterate. Mm -hmm. They really don't understand money. They don't understand value. What they basically is majored in BS. So here's what I mean by that. If I got a bunch of kids in a room, and I and let's say I, and, and I'm equally boys and girls, and I say, girls, let me ask you a question. No offense, but I pick up a shoe, and I say, girls, um, um. I, one of the girls just gave me their shoe. 
Now, I want to sell this shoe to you for a dollar. Now, is that is that a good deal or a bad deal? Every girl is going to say, well, that's a steal. I said, yeah. Now, if I asked for $1,000 for the shoe, you would say what? No way. That's, you're, that's Highway Robert. So, see, you've already understood. You, you've spent your entire life learning to value things that don't hold their value or generate cash flow or appreciate. Mm-hmm. So you are financially illiterate. You're holding all this knowledge in your heads that has nothing to do with making money. You know the value of a song. You know the value of a movie. If I said, hey, let's go to the movies, and it's $50 for a minute, you'd say, well, that's too much money. Oh, so you understand the value of what it costs to get a ticket to the show. Yes. So let me ask you a question. We drove by that piece of real estate. Do you know the value of that? Mm-hmm. No. Well, now, excuse me just a second. You understand the value of a book. You know the value of a CD or a song or a download. You know the value of a ticket to a movie. You know the value of a shirt. You know the value of a blouse. You know the value of a haircut. Look, you're a master of value. And the problem is you're the master of things that don't appreciate or generate cash flow. Mm-hmm. You're illiterate. Me trying to tell you to go make more money is kind of a waste of time because you don't even understand money. Yeah. So the secret, the secret, by the way, is you're going to have to go pick your profit. There's a lot of people that understand how to make money. Don't keep reading books about money. Find someone and study it. But the reality is, at the end of the day, the greatest wealth comes from either owning real estate or owning a business. Have a nice day. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest wealth. So if, you're, if you came to me tomorrow morning and said, how do I make money? I said, it's real simple. What I need you to do is go take the money you have and really get your lifestyle down to where you're, you're living on, on less than what you earn. And I don't want you to run off and just spend that money. I want you to set it aside, and I want you to understand value. Mm -hmm. Can you buy a piece of real estate with nothing down? The answer is yes. Could you actually buy a business with zero down? Yes. But do you understand how to buy a piece of real estate and not lose money on it? No. Then you should not buy real estate. How did you educate educate yourself in real estate and, and the financial aspects? Did you... Did you learn from your parents? By the way, let me ask. You, okay, let yeah. me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. How did you How did you educate yourself on the value of a shirt? Media is generally the number one way people learn things. Unfortunately, unfortunately, they see a commercial. Well, you, well, well sure. Well, the way you did it in the end today is you'd probably get online and just t- look for the shirt you want, and then you'd price compare. And after about thirty minutes, you would understand the value of the shirt you're looking for, wouldn't you? Correct. Yes. Yeah, then that's how you do it. At the end of the day, the way you understand value of anything is you study enough by comparison, right? If I go out on the street tomorrow and I see 10 houses and, um, oh, by the way, nine of them are selling for 200000 and one who is exactly identical is selling for one hundred and fifty. voila, I don't have to be a genius. Yes. I just saw something that's undervalued, right? So what happens is... When you begin to study the value, if you looked at real estate every day the same way that you've been looking at shoes, mm-hmm. I promise you that's the only thing you have to do in the end to understand value mm-hmm. is you haven't looked at enough of them to see what's a good deal or a bad deal. So you don't know. I got to hang out with Arnold Schwarzenegger the other day, and he, his story, how he became a millionaire in real estate, he was living in Santa Monica, lifting weights. He found some realtors, and he literally put on his tennis shoes and started walking Santa Monica, just like you said. So I always say, you'll never have what you don't understand. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's muscles, you never talk to, him, right. you never talk to him and go, oh, how are your trapeziuses doing? And he goes, oh, what's a trap? I don't know what that is. No, he knows everything. So it always starts with knowledge. How did, how, for someone, That's right. For someone listening, 
What's your favorite way to learn now? Is it books? Is it mentors? Is it putting shoes on and going experiencing in person? Is it going to conferences, seminars? What are some great techniques in specifically? Well, it depends on the, I think it depends on the topic, doesn't it? If we were talking about real estate and wealth building in particular, yes, it would talk about be that. put Let's on talk your about shoes. That. It would put, it, yeah, put on your shoes and go walk. And then, and then, by the way, that's understanding value. If we want to actually understand the intricacies of it, we're going to go get, need to get a couple of books and read them and then go find someone and debate and discuss, tear it apart, and right, and, and study it. So there's going to be a couple of steps, but the first one would be put on your shoes. What? Now, is there, a, is there a, a, my favorite way of learning in general? It always starts with a book. It always starts with a book. Uh, go, if, if there's a subject you want to learn, uh, then, go, then go easily. Go Google, go um, get on a couple of book sites, study them, uh, and read, read the reviews, read about it, go get it, study it, you know. And then go find someone to debate and discuss after you, right? Yeah. I always have a notebook, and when I read, I literally pull the ideas out so that um, at the end of the book, I can toss the book, and what I have are the key important points from the book. Now, by the way, I also rarely read a book cover to cover, right? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why we, Jay and I wrote the one thing in, in a little over 200 pages was we wanted you to be done before you realized you were done. <laughs> We didn't want to, to give you, you know, 350, 450 pages where you're slogging through and you just toss it after half. Yeah. What We what, wanted you to finish it. A few books you've read recently or ever that are foundational for understanding real estate. Can you for understanding real estate? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, okay, this is self-serving, but The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, I wrote that for that reason. No, it's fine. Millionaire Real Estate Agent. Okay. Yeah, and the million. Well, that's being a real estate agent. Then I wrote the millionaire real estate investor. Okay. So if you want to understand real estate sales, it's the millionaire real estate agent, uh, number one selling uh, real estate career book of all time. If you want to understand real estate investing, then read the millionaire real estate investor. And then there were two follow-up books that we wrote called Flip and Hold. Hmm. Flip and Hold. How about how conferences? Real estate, how do you, do you do you recommend people? There's a lot of real estate conferences. You see them all over. The Donald Trumps or this or that. Well, uh, what do My you think? My personal, of? well, I think it's fine. I don't. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. For me, reading a, a book is. You asked me the question. For me personally, it's go get a book, read the book, pull the key points out. If that person that I read, by the way, is someone that. I now want to go learn more from if they're teaching a seminar or something. Absolutely. You know, I would, I'll give you a book. I tell you right now, if you wanted to understand money at a basic level, go read Cash Flow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. Cash Flow Quadrant. Okay, if you, yeah. Yeah. If you want to understand money, there isn't any question in my mind that what Robert did with that book um, was, uh, you know, just short of genius. And in one simple way, he explains the, the path of money in such a way that it's so easy to grasp that you set the book down and you go, holy cow, that was easy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went out. So, yeah, seminars are great. I, seminars are great, but I'd start with a book. Now, if people have free cash flow, they have money to invest, whether it's cash in the bank, uh -huh. whether it's extra money per month, I know you love real estate. What's a good rule of thumb for, to get people started? Do they invest in real estate? in REITs, in mutual funds? Do you recommend people go out that everybody listening should own a few properties well, that they rent out and or that they flip? 
Okay, so you have a choice. You have a cho- when you have money, you're holding money in your pocket. You have two choices. You can either passively invest or actively invest. Mm-hmm. If you passively invest, that means you're going to either being lend, you're going to lend money to like a bank in a money market or a CD or whatever, or you can um, own, right? Mm-hmm. So you can own in a REIT, a real estate investment trust, uh, or something like that. So those are your choices if you're going to be passive, right? Stock market is passive. Yes. But it's passive ownership. So I can lend or I can own in, in passive. But by the way, your interest, your, your return on those are not going to be phenomenally high. Right. If you look at a rate of return chart, they're going to be low. You know, you're, you're, if you're lending money passively to banks like a mutual fund or even a municipal bond right now, right, you're lending money to government, you're going to get less than 2% on your money at best. If you go into a REIT or the stock market, you might get anywhere from 5.5% all the way up to, what, 9%? But yes. that would mean you would, have to hold, you would have to hold them on an average of at least seven years. Yeah. So the problem, the problem is with passive investments like that is there's nothing you can do about it. So it, and by the way, if you only have a little money and you go put it there, the problem is there's a little money invested in a piece of real estate unless you just bought the corner of Fifth and Main uh, is never going to make you rich. Yeah. So that you're much better off if you have a little money. The best place to put it is in a, is in a well-positioned piece of real estate. No, I mean, in the end of discussion. But you better get good at value or you're going to lose your money, right? Yes. Now. That's the best place. That's the best place to put it. Now, in terms of best rates of return, it's always going to be owning a business. Yes, you're going to get the best rate of return on the planet by owning. I invested forty-four thousand dollars in Keller Williams in 1983. Mm-hmm. Paid the money back in one year. Never borrowed money again. Step free. All right, Gary. Thank you. We're going to move now. He's going to talk in the entrepreneur level. If you're just in the money level, you might want access to this money. I mean, this entrepreneur level and persuasion. But before, to close this one out, okay? Number one, what real estate books are you going to order today? Put that in the comment to close out this lesson. He gave a few, okay? Number two, how many minutes a day are you going to commit? He said you must understand if you want to be in real estate, you got to understand it by putting your feet in some shoes and walking. Get out there like Arnold Schwarzenegger did. So. Uh, where can you go walk around and learn about real estate? Even if you're not going to be a huge real estate investor, everybody who has money has a little bit of money in, re- uh, in real estate. It's just part of the game of life. There's, it's an asset. It's a fixed di- uh, diversification that you can make. So what area are you interested in that you can put your shoes on and walk around? That's below. Okay. Number three, how are you going to passively invest a little bit of money. It doesn't have to be all of the money that you have, but if you're investing in 401k and tax deferred plans in the stock market, uh, where, where do you want to invest? Do you want to invest in real estate investment trusts, big mutual funds? This is passive investments. What some ideas you might have or questions, and you can read other people in the program and you get some back and forth going. So answer that third. Okay, that'll close this out, and I'll see those of you in Entrepreneur and Persuasion in the next segment. All right, welcome everybody to this Money Accelerator mini talk. I've got an awesome guest here on the line I'm going to bring on in a second, the author of Glassjaw, uh, Eric Desenhall. And so if you want to make money, if you want to increase your income, you have to be able to fight fires because fires are going to be thrown at you. 
as you go on the rise, trust me, I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in every single person that ever does big things, uh, you're going to come under attack. And if you don't know how to deal with it, you're going to lose money. Whether it be a career change that you want, a promotion, whether you're an entrepreneur watching this, whether you're an investor, uh, you're going to have to know what are the specifics. And I want to talk specifically, we're going to talk a little bit broad, but I want to talk specifically about social media because that pertains to you whether you're unemployed, whether you have a career and you're looking to move up in the promotion ladder, or whether you're an entrepreneur and business person, you're going to have to know the specifics of social media and doing it right. If you do it wrong, there's immense ramifications and Eric's gonna talk about that. So Eric, let's talk about the subject of money, reputation, crisis and PR. For somebody listening, um, having your reputation damaged, whether it be your business, whether it be a career you have and other people talking about you, can have a huge effect on your income. Um, so as we kind of narrow this down, you know, really to the subject of money, what, let, let's talk first about some real examples you've seen uh, of people losing a lot of money. You gave some examples, Toyota and so on. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Paula Dean, when Paula Dean ended up uh, getting caught for admitting in deposition that she had used a racial epithet 30 years ago, there was a business consequence to that. Um, Donald Trump's mouthing off has had real business consequences uh, to what he what he does. I mean, he really fundamentally makes his living as an entertainer, and by taking some of the positions he's he's taken in his political efforts, that has hurt uh, that has hurt his business. One of the first things that I ask a client is, what what is it that you really want from a crisis management program? Uh, do you want revenge? Do you want money? Do you want justice? Do you want peace? And one of the things that I've always found problematic about the term reputation is it's sort of loosey-goosey. I mean, I mean, who knows what it means? I mean, I know when I get involved with something, it's because there is a quantifiable marketplace threat. And often what I tell clients is what they really want right now is they want peace. Yeah. They want peace in order to be able to get back to business and do what they do. What they often want, even though they don't admit it, uh, they want revenge. They think they're going to hire a tough guy crisis manager and who is going to, like Michael Corleone at the end of The Godfather, strike back at all their enemies. Well, that's not what I do. And so uh, really, you know, whenever I hear somebody say, a crisis is an opportunity. This is someone who's never been in a crisis. I'm telling you right now, a crisis is almost never an opportunity. These what aren't how you want to fight your opportunities. I'm sorry? These are definitely not the way. You don't want to find your opportunities through these reputational crises. No, and I, you know, I always hear PR people saying that all the time. These are PR people. These are not crisis managers. And often what we're trying to do is get a client healthy again so they can get back business because it's hard to make money when you're in a crisis i mean by way of example i i can't discuss clients um name clients that are not already in the public domain but i but it is in the public domain that um i did some work on michael jackson's defense and when his people first came to me i asked them what they wanted and this was before this was in the early 2000s before we knew 
uh, before the allegations, the second allegations of child molestation became public. And I asked Michael Jackson's team, what, what do you want from me? And one of the people at the table said, well, uh, people think Michael is weird. And when these allegations surface, people are going to say Michael's weird. And I said, he is peculiar. What do you yeah. think I can do about that? And they were okay. shocked because they thought that what I, what I would do is say, I've got a way to handle that. And I said precisely the opposite, that this is a guy who's cultivated for decades the idea of him being weird. Uh, weird. And by the way, a lot of that is, 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 is cultivated. I mean, that, you know, Michael Jackson was not as strange as he wanted people to think he is, was, but that was a marketing thing. And quite simply, what I ended up saying is the goal is very simple here. Michael Jackson has a half a billion dollars debt. He is not going to get out of debt if he's in jail. He's going to get out of debt if he's, go- if he's able to sing and dance. And so the objective is acquittal. And so if you look back on the Michael Jackson's trial, nobody succeeded in getting him a better image, but he did succeed in getting acquitted. He got acquitted because it became very clear in the trial that the people who accused him have a rap sheet of extortion. These are people who are yeah. running around saying that their kids were molested by other people. Uh, they never, you know, they would pass the department store, oh, I fell down and was severely injured and I need $8 million. I mean, that's why he was acquitted. So in order to get to your issue of money, you have to get to the issue of acquittal. In order to get to acquittal, you have to get to reasonable doubt. Now, in, tragically, in Michael Jackson's case, um, the thing that ended up causing him to make money was death, uh, yeah. which is which is generally ill-advised. But the point is, is the analogy <laughs> yeah, like, here is it's an understatement. You know, we have we have to we have to get clients healthy enough again so that they can make they can make money, and, and the way to do that is to clear the distractions that are currently happening in the marketplace. Yeah. Now let's talk specifically now more about social media because people listening uh, you've talked about you talk about in the book how people overuse social media but I I think this is uh, an area that we have to address because people listening now in this in this money talk you know you're gonna be on social media at some level it's it's somewhat naive to think you're gonna operate in this world with no social media although it's possible but as you expand out entrepreneurially as you expand out in the workplace, career-wise, you could probably need to go on LinkedIn and so on. So let's talk some specifics on social media, the good, the bad, the ugly, how to do it right, how, and you've alluded to this in the book, you know, don't necessarily try to fight back on social media. Let's start with saying, what are the things an individual listening should be very wary about posting that you've seen backfire on people? What are the type of posts that don't do well, besides well, the obvious? Well, I, 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 I have seen um, a lot of errors, and a lot of it is, first of all, um, companies have gotten in trouble by posting, uh, by provoking open-ended debates. I mean, uh, British Gas um, engaged in a debate with, um, said, you know, I know we've hiked prices a few years ago, uh, how do you feel about you know our efforts to improve? And the reaction was, we think you should die. <laughs> you know, wow. uh, J.P. Morgan did the same sort of thing. Let's have a dialogue on social media um, about uh, some of our initiatives. And the reaction was, you're a bunch of um, 
uh, rapacious um, capitalist, we hope horrible things happen to you. McDonald's had that happen, too. So the idea of using social media to have an open-ended dialogue with people uh, is generally ill-advised um, you know, if you're a big company. I also think that's true individually. I know that um, I don't particularly want to have an open-ended debate with people about what I do for a living because a lot of people disapprove of it. However, do I post, you know, when, when, your, when my interview with you is posted, will I put that on social media? Absolutely, because I want to disperse something that I think people will find interesting, and I think that they will find your show interesting, and I think they will, people tend to enjoy, I know I enjoy listening to authors of books like Glassjaw talk about what went into doing the book. So, th- so those, are, those are very discrete, specific things. I think where we have to be careful is do you really uh, want people uh, out in the world knowing a lot of personal information about you? I think that there is a tendency for people to believe that we are all celebrities talking to Conan about how we wrestled with drug addiction. I mean, do you really want everybody to know everything personal about you? Do you really want to provoke a conversation? I mean, if I were to get on your show and say, let me tell you about my politics. I support, you know, XX candidate. Well, all of a sudden, a bunch of people who are listening are going to go, well, I hate that guy. Therefore, I hate everything about this guest, and I don't want to listen. And so I think that... um, I think that that has to really be be rethought. Uh, I know, as an employer, I have looked, uh, not personally, but I have had colleagues of mine look at people's social media posts. And, you know, it, it, I know my clients, for example, do not want to believe they have hired someone at a crisis management firm that has been photographed in a drunken riot um, somewhere. And, and th- those are things that have to be watched. So... Being a, sometimes we need to err on the side of being a little more secret about, like you said, if somebody's listening has been an alcoholic, may not be something you want to always post. Uh, you know, if you've had a DUI, you may not want to post that, even though we have this feeling that we want to get it all out there. Um, so what should people post? You said you would repost this. What else are the type of things that a listener would want to post that can actually help? Because like you said, if you post this, interview glass jaw this can help your money financial situation can help your income because more people buy your book more people use your services so somebody listening in that same way maybe they're wanting a promotion at work or maybe they're an entrepreneur uh they're a public speaker what did they post that you've seen work really well yeah i mean i i i think that there are things that that solidify your expertise. I mean, I write articles and uh, on subjects, and even though I know everybody might not agree with it, part of what I do want people to see, whether they read Glassjaw or an article I write on the Huffington Post, I do want people to say, this is how this guy thinks. Now, granted, will there somebody? Will there be somebody out there who doesn't agree? Sure, uh, but I don't. I don't see uh, all, all much harm, at least, in saying to the world. Uh, look, if you're interested in this type of thing, uh, this is the way my mind works, and um, I, I, I think that there's benefit to that. I mean, also, look, I, I, I do use social media to stay in touch 
with people I grew up with, uh, and I don't see much harm in aspects of, of, of Facebook that, that accomplish that. I mean, I don't think that you need to get so paranoid that you have no profile whatsoever. I mean, I genuinely like seeing that someone who was a good friend when I was 11 years old uh, has grown up and has a family, and, oh, boy, that, that child looks like my friend. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that that's perfectly harmless, and I think that that's one of the good things uh, that social media uh, has, has, has brought to us. Um, so why not? There's a level of connectivity. It sounds like it's just, you know, a little bit of logic that goes into it. Do you, you know, one of the things that I teach in the 67 Steps, I've got a program, what I learned from my mentor, 67 uh, lessons in. One of them is you got you to gotta think about what the downside is. So what you want in life are things that have very little downside and a lot of potential upside. You, can, you don't always capitalize on the upside. So you ask yourself, if I post this picture, like you were saying, if somebody's out partying, they're a professional, and they're you know, gonna post a picture of them drunk, so what's the upside first? So the upside of that picture is well, not much. Yeah. Maybe people know you're out and they go, oh, they're having fun. But what's the downside? And you put it on a simple pros and cons uh, teeter-totter in your brain. You go, okay, there's potentially 40 units of taking a step backwards with this picture. There's only two steps forward, potentially. 40 steps back, two steps forward. Boom, don't do it. And I, and I try to do that with my social media and I try to do that things. The only time, now if something, there are things you're going to have to post at times which might have five steps backwards and you want to make sure it's got the potential for 10, 20, 30, 40 steps forward. And I think when you think that way about life in general and specifically about managing your reputation through social media, that some of the common sense things will just be obvious for you. Well, I think that one of the things people need to understand about Glassjaw and crisis management is I am in the business of dealing with the downside, okay? I mean, one of the reasons why PR types don't really like what I write and what I do is marketers and PR people are all about dispersing positivity. Yes. And they're not wrong, by the way. They're, where they are wrong is thinking that their discipline. Uh, is, a, is effective in crisis management. So it is not unusual, for example, for if, if a client has a crisis and I encourage them with advertising to do what we call going dark, pull their advertising for a while, if you're an ad agency, you don't like that. Yeah. You don't make money. And so I think that, and it doesn't, by the way, mean that uh, either of us is totally right or totally wrong. But I think that, that when, you, when you read Glassjaw, you have to keep in mind that I play on the liability side of the balance sheet. There may be people who are listening to this and who say, well, but I like doing a lot of social media and it brings me a lot of business. And you know something? They're, they're you know, smart people. They're, they're, they're right. A lot of though, what, where I operate, I don't make my clients money. In fact, that's one of the reasons they don't like getting invoices, because you don't hire me and then a month later say, wow, I hired him, and sales went up 20%. Yeah. What I'm doing is I am making your world a little less bad than it would be otherwise. So what you have to remember about crisis management is it is a downside discipline. 
It is about making things less bad. It is not about making things look good. And I, as I say to all of my clients, when they somewhat apologetically say, well, you know, we have to let our ad agencies and others know what we're doing, I always say you should have an ad agency. You should have a conventional PR firm. You just need to make sure you are listening to a specialist when it comes to the fact that you have <clears throat> attackers out there trying to hurt you. So it's just, you know, a lot of times people listen to me saying negative things about social media and they conclude this guy is against social media. That's absolutely not the message. Um, the message is social media, when it comes to damage control, is usually the problem, is rarely the solution. So understand that social media is a tactic. It is a weapon. I mean, a gun in the hands of a police officer, you know, is probably, in most cases, a good thing. A gun in the hand of a child is almost never a good thing. <laughs> so somebody listening needs to understand there will be times when you're not in crisis, when things are going well, and that is when you post a lot on social media, still following the common sense rules. But that's when you're getting a lot of good things out there. That's what a traditional PR firm, they would get. You know, look at all this that I've done. And I gave to charity and this, that, that, that. And you're getting that out there. But when the dark days come, when a crisis starts and somebody starts a rumor about you or your product or your service, you're saying that sometimes you recommend going dark. That means stopping posting just to kind of let the storm blow over. Or what's the logic Uh as we kind of wrap well, up Well, I, I, I think you, you, you use the right analogy. I mean, I always tell people you can't rebuild a house in a hurricane. So what usually happens to me is I have a client that has been accused of all kinds of terribleness, and there's always somebody sitting at the table that says, we need to talk about the goods we do, the good that we do. Okay, the problem is, is when you are in the middle of a hemorrhaging crisis, you are nobody wants to hear about the good you do. Yeah. You, you cannot communicate in an environment where nobody wants to hear it. I yeah. mean, when, when you have an oil spill, nobody cares that you gave money uh, to charity. They really don't. In fact, when they hear you talking about it, they want to strangle you because they think you're trying to fool them. And so... You know, you, part of crisis management, and I talk about this last jaw, is, is, is timing the waves. Uh, there is a time and place to communicate. There is a time and place to come back. I mean, when Toyota and now Volkswagen is in the middle of, of the fiasco vortex, there's going to be a time when they run ads that say, look at our new 2016 models and how, how great they are. Here are the benefits. But the time, the answer to allegations about software that falsely represent environmental claims is not to say, wow, you know, this new car goes from zero to 60 in four seconds. Um, nobody wants to hear it, and in fact, they will be inflamed by it. I believe that one of the things that hurt BP is, is, is so many people, when they had the spill, came out and said, you've been spending millions of dollars saying that you're a solar and wind-powered company. That makes us want to strangle you. Yeah. So there's a time and place for, uh, there's a time and place, uh, for, for certain communications, and you can't rebuild your house in a hurricane. Okay, Eric, that was awesome. For those of you who are in the entrepreneur and persuasion, 
get ready, you can click over to those. If you're not in the entrepreneur persuasion levels, you're gonna miss out here on what I'm talking to Eric. So click the link, the help button, and ask how you can get into entrepreneur and persuasion. But before we end here, I want you, remember it's 56% more effective, these talks, if you actually leave a thoughtful uh, comment below. So what, here's the question number one. I've got two questions for you. Number one, what have you been doing right with social media in terms of managing your reputation and your image? Number two, based on what we talked about today, what have you been doing wrong with social media? What do you need to change? Answer those two questions below and that will close out uh, today's mini talk. All right, and I'll see those of you who are have access to Entrepreneur on the uh, next talk.